What is thy bidding, my master? There is a great disturbance in the force. I have felt it. We have a new enemy, Luke Skywalker. Welcome to Now Playing's Star Wars Retrospective Series. Good morning! Nice of you guys to drop by! Hosted by Arnie. You're a great help to us. You're a natural leader. Stuart. He's quite clever, you know. But a human being. And Jacob. <laughs> well, he seems very friendly. <laughs> yes. Very friendly. <laughs> Jedi must have the deepest commitment, hmm? the most serious mind. Come to NowPlayingPodcast.com each week as they review another Star Wars film, leading up to Episode 7, The Force Awakens. If you only knew the power of the dark side. This podcast will contain detailed plot spoilers. I have a bad feeling about this. Listener discretion is advised. Artu says the chances of survival are 725 to 1. I'm not afraid. You will be. You will be. Today, The Empire Strikes Back discussing we are. Mark Hamill, it is starring. And Harrison Ford, Carrie Fisher, Billy D. Williams, Anthony Daniels, David Prowse, Kenny Baker, Peter Mayhew, Frank Oz, directed by Irvin Kirshner it is. Away put your weapon, I mean you no harm. Arnie, co-host of Now Playing I am. <laughs> Stuart in LA. And this is Jacob, your slimy, double-crossing, no-good swindler of a podcasting host. The Empire Strikes Back. This is one of my earliest theater-going memories. I remember being enthralled with it on screen as a five-year-old child just staring up mesmerized by this point my bedroom was already littered with star wars action figures and the things that were revealed in that movie mind-blowing to a five-year-old yeah i don't remember ever seeing this one in theaters i saw it at some point but i do remember as a child talking about this one like this is the one I had the sheets for my bed from, I had the vehicles. I didn't have a lot of vehicles growing up. We just didn't have the money, but I had a slave one and I had a cloud car, the twin cloud car vehicle and Boba Fett, he's introduced here. But yeah, mind blowing discussions like, no, wait, aren't the good guys always supposed to win? And, And of course the big reveal, like this was a big topic of discussion amongst my peers at a very young age. It it was such a different movie for a child to see. Yeah, I remember my experience seeing it in theaters. I saw it with my whole family. We had just actually moved to Springfield. I didn't even know Arnie yet, but it felt like the whole universe had opened up for me. I was totally primed for anything sci-fi. Should be pointed out that there was a flood of sci-fi out at this point. Not just Star Wars, but Alien had already come out, and (laughs) don't laugh, Black Hole. I was really excited about it. (laughs) I had the tote bag. I was told I cried during that film. It scared me so bad. I've never revisited it. Yeah, I remember falling asleep during the Star Trek, the motion picture, theatrical experience. I was into it. So yeah, I mean, I think I even had a Empire Strikes Back toy. I believe it was from Empire Strikes Back. It was Yoda, and he came with like a little long stick that you could take off of his hand. And a snake. 
it was the Empire Strikes Back that took me from being a kid who played with toys to a collector. So obsessed was I with the Empire Strikes Back, I had to have a Yoda figure. Now, as an adult... 40 years old, who knows the history of Star Wars figures, I know they didn't make a Yoda figure right away because they didn't want to spoil that he was Yoda. They waited until later in the year. That didn't stop five-year-old Arnie from dragging his parents and godparents to every store in the city every weekend to look for a Yoda. (laughs) Finally found one on a Christmas shopping trip in Chicago on Black Friday. (laughs) <laughs> Congratulations. I, so they did that to preserve the movie surprise? Wow, I don't think they do that anymore, do they? Actually, they do. There are certain figure lines, and I think The Force Awakens is among them, where they delay certain figures to later waves so that it doesn't spoil the movie surprise. And they did similar things with Return of the Jedi as well. The Ewoks, they kept them blacked out on the back of cards. You just knew something was coming, but not what. Yeah. Okay. Well, I had a Yoda. I don't know when I did, but I was into this movie. I also had a comic book. I remember it was oversized, and I remember reading it. I think it's why I remembered this story better than Star Wars. Even though I saw Star Wars as my first memory and watched it several times, probably more than I saw Empire, this one made more of an impression on me. Well, I can't wait to hear your summary in a little bit then. <laughs> <laughs> yes, but first I think I owe uh, George Lucas an apology. I th- yeah, you talking about Flash Gordon? <laughs> <laughs> Last week, I, I was just free-forming. I thought it was, you know, and I'm still not convinced. Was it that Star Wars was so great, or could any sci-fi property have stepped in at that moment and really seized our imagination because we were looking for uplifting visions that made us think about outer space and not Vietnam War? Well, Flash Gordon isn't it. I gotta say, I did watch <laughs> the thing, and, you know, it's... It's got its own vibe, but it's a pretty perverted vibe. I got to say, it's a sex fantasy, really. I mean, there's a lot of Bob Guccione-influenced imagery (laughs) in the movie. I can understand why some people would go for it, but the humor goes away pretty quickly for me. I enjoyed about five minutes of it, and it's a two-hour movie. So I think the problem is with Flash Gordon is it didn't believe its myths. The one thing you got to give George Lucas is he has absolute conviction in the story that he's telling with Luke. And Flash Gordon, it was all a parody. It was all a joke. And I don't think that that is what we wanted in 1980 or, or 1977 even. We wanted to believe. And that's why Star Wars wins. Yeah, I told you last show. That actually might have, if it had come first, killed the sci-fi revival movement. (laughs) It was a hit in Europe. I want to point out, the Europeans dug it. Yeah, yeah, I could totally see that. (laughs) It had a Barbarella vibe, you know? It had, uh, it reminded me of, like, 60s sci-fi kind of stuff. It's very colorful. I'll give it that. (laughs) Yeah, it's got a cool art direction. It's got its thing. I don't want to diss it, but I can't say I really enjoyed it either. But you mentioned apologizing to George Lucas. This one is not directed by George Lucas. George Lucas in the original trilogy only directed the first, and in fact, this is going to be the movie he has the least involvement with. At this point, Lucas is busy setting up an empire, a toy manufacturing empire, a special effects company, a business setting up Lucasfilm. And so, to direct, he brought in his old school teacher, Irvin Kirshner. 
RoboCop 2 fame. Never <laughs> say never again fame. Oh, yay, yay. They're not two uh, things that I would want to credit him for. But hey, if he was able to make Empire Strikes Back, I got to salute the guy. I don't know his career, really. But I know those two films and I don't like them. But I also know Empire. <laughs> and, you know, my memory going into this one was that it was going to be the highlight of the whole thing. I mean, barring whatever episode seven ends up being, I predict this one to be my favorite. Well, all the stuff I've read said that Lucas was otherwise engaged, and Kirsch pretty much had free reign on this one. He told Lucas that he wasn't going to come in just to be the guy who says action. If he was going to direct it, he was going to direct it. So what we see is a movie, Kirsch's film, and <laughs> Lucas at times has gone on record as saying this is his least favorite of the Star Wars films. Oh, come on. I do feel like there is actually a director behind this film, and I'll cite specific examples as we go through the movie, but was Lucas, was he not even involved with the special effects? Like, I know when we get to Jedi, he did all these special effects stuff. He wasn't doing the AT-ATs here. Did he leave that up to... ILM? Oh, he didn't do much of the effects in A New Hope either. He always just hired the guys and said, go do it. And not to say Lucas wasn't involved. Right. Yeah, I mean, I don't, I can't imagine he was on vacation. He no. was around. I'm sure he's approving all the design and all that. But he was working on Raiders at the same time too, right? To a degree. I mean, they weren't filming simultaneously or anything. Raiders came out after this, and he was perhaps working on pre-production for it. Like I say, he had a lot going on during this time, and of all the Star Wars movies until Episode Seven, not counting the holiday special, this would be the one that I think Lucas was most hands-off of, which is why I think he was more critical about it. I actually got a chance to take part in a roundtable interview with Kirsch. Nice guy. It was not long before he passed away. He was quite hard of hearing at that point. And so when one of the reporters rather ham-fistedly asked him what he thought of Lucas's comments about The Empire Strikes Back, the interpreter who would take a question and then shout it into the director's ear uh, <laughs> misdirected that one and refused to shout what was asked. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, and I don't want to imply, or or maybe I do, that because I think this one is my favorite, or at least that was the way my memory holds, and it's the one that Lucas is least involved with, that there is some kind of correlation there, but... Maybe. I definitely think that you can see a difference in tone and style in almost everything between the movie last week and this one. So why don't you tell us what you thought this one was going to be about, Stuart, since you had such a amusing memory of the first Star Wars film? Yeah, I did this one better, I think. I, I got more right here. I was a little proud of myself. All right, so here's the stream of consciousness paragraph I wrote right before hitting play. Hoth, Ice Planet, Luke rides Tauntaun, strung up by Abominable Snowman, uses force <laughs> to draw Saber to him and escape, put in a big tank of water. Wow, you got some details. Yeah, no, I had the comic book. I mean, I remember pouring over these images. Adats brought down by lassoing ships. Luke goes to Dagobah, how about that? There you go. To train with Yoda, no try, only do. Lift ship with R2, has dream of Vader. Han betrayed by friend Lando in Sky City. I think I wrote Circuit City and crossed it out. <laughs> he could have been betrayed there, too. I don't know. I think we all were. Put in Carbonite. Luke is too late to rescue him. Luke, I am your father. Loses his hand. He either jumps or falls down a big shaft. Ends up staring out a window with a new hand with Leia. 
Was C-3PO even in this movie? Did Leia do more than kiss Han? Obi-Wan's like a ghost or something, right? Oh, wait, there's a monster in an asteroid that tries to eat the Millennium Falcon. And that's it. I didn't mention Boba Fett. I guess that is my one big sin there. (laughs) That's true. But then again, how big a part Boba Fett is for this. Boba Fett was known when this movie came out. Not only was he the first Empire Strikes Back character to get an action figure. It was actually released on a Star Wars card before they had the Empire Strikes Back logo. But also, he had been introduced to audiences as the next great villain from the Star Wars Holiday Special. (laughs) Yes. I think he's going to set the standard with the Star Wars films of a character that gets a few seconds on screen and that becomes the biggest deal ever. There's another one that gets even less screen time when we get to The Phantom Menace that ended up becoming a huge deal. Yeah, it's big for merchandise and marketing, but yeah, the actual screen time is kind of shocking for Boba Fett here. He gets a bigger role. I know that they bring him in in one of the prequels. Yes, we will get there. But why don't you give him the real plot, Arnie? I I did my best, but I'm sure there's some holes to be filled. It's a short time after the events of the first Star Wars film, and the Rebels, including Luke Skywalker, Princess Leia, and Han Solo, have been hiding out on the remote ice world of Hoth. But Darth Vader is obsessed with finding the Rebels and Skywalker, and the Imperials storm the planet. Han and Leia barely escape along with Chewbacca and C-3PO, but as Han's ship, the Millennium Falcon, was damaged, they couldn't jump to light speed. Luke and his droid R2-D2 escape and go to the planet Dagobah, which Luke saw in a vision of his old master Obi-Wan Kenobi. And the dead Jedi told Luke to seek out Yoda, a Jedi master who will help Luke complete his training in the Force. Leia and Han eventually escape the Imperials and go to Cloud City, a gas mine owned by Han's old associate, Lando Calrissian, played by Billy Dee Williams, proving the galaxy far, far away does have black people. (laughs) Lando promised to help fix Han's ship, but in truth, the bounty hunter Boba Fett got there first, and Vader intimidated Lando to betray Han and company. The rebels are captured and tortured, all as a trap for Luke. And it's a trap that works. All the way on Dagobah, Luke has a vision of his friends in pain. So, even with his training incomplete, he leaves Yoda to go to Cloud City and face off against Darth Vader. But when Luke arrives, it's too late to save Han. The smuggler has been frozen in carbonite and taken by Boba Fett to be delivered to Jabba the Hutt on Tatooine. Leia and Chewbacca escape, though, thanks to help from Lando, who betrays the Imperials to help his friends. Luke faces off in a lightsaber battle against Darth Vader, but he's no match for the Dark Lord. His hand is cut off and Vader reveals the truth about Luke's parentage. Vader didn't kill Luke's father. Vader is Luke's father. Unable to deal with this information, Luke barely escapes with his life, but he's rescued by Leia and Chewbacca as they prepare to go rescue Han on Tatooine as credits roll. Now, anyone who knows that movie knows that plot summary couldn't be more high level, but... That's why we got the rest of the show. Yeah, exactly. I just don't (laughs) want the Star Wars action news listeners tuning in going, is that what he thinks it's all about? What about the ghost of Obi-Wan? What about, no, there is another. (laughs) What about Luke's artificial hand that has feeling? What about the Wampas? What about the Adats? We'll get there. (laughs) We will get there. I do want to call out one thing about the opening scroll this time. Empire's chasing the rebels. There's a new base on Hoth. And Vader's looking for Luke Skywalker. Now, there's a scene later on that seems to contradict this, but this opening scroll seems to imply that Vader already knows about Luke 
and is on the hunt for him. Well, I think the scene you're talking about later, we will go through in detail because this movie did get special editioned and Blu-ray editioned and the digital download edition without the 20th Century Fox fanfare replaced by Lucasfilm fake fanfare. I guess I'll have to wait till episode seven to hear what that's like. But... As far as special edition changes go, Empire Strikes Back is perhaps the least sullied of the original trilogy. But things do get more muddy with a certain scene between Darth Vader and the Emperor on the Blu-ray edition. And I did watch both editions of this one because, yeah, this doesn't have Greedo shooting first. Uh, There's a scene in Return of the Jedi that I hate, and that's why I won't watch that special edition. But no, this one, I did watch both because I remember that scene where Vader's going to talk to the Emperor, and they've expanded on that. I don't know if they changed it between the DVD special edition and the Blu-ray special edition, but there's definitely a change in that conversation. Okay, so I'm not crazy. There's not a lot of CGI gimmickry in this one. They didn't insert a lot of extra characters. The only thing I really noticed was Sky City seems to have gotten a major uplift here, but it was mostly the movie I had in my memory from childhood. There's more Wampa. That's the big thing that I remember getting added was that... What's a Wampa? The Abominable Snowman. (laughs) Oh, okay. (laughs) Here's the thing about the special editions is, as I understand it and my memory from 1997-ish time, is that... Lucas only planned on making the special edition of A New Hope, but things were tracking so well, studios were so excited, toys were selling so well, there was money to be made, and so Lucas had less time to do special editions of Empire and Jedi. Which was shocking, because going in to see the special editions, I knew the stuff I would think should be changed with CGI. There's a lot of stop motion in this one versus the last one, and it's Mm -hmm. especially bad with the Tauntauns. Oh, for me, Cloud City looks awful. Like, redo it all. The the map paintings, everything. Just, it looks dated here. I, I was able to go with most of the old special effects with Star Wars, but when we get to Cloud City, it, it's tough to watch at times. I agree with that. But when I was watching the making ofs, some of the things they were really happy about was they got to clean up a lot of mat lines on Hoth. And if you watch really closely on the original edition, you can actually see through the snow speeders when you're in the cockpit view, where there's supposed to be beams. The chroma keying was a little too harsh, and you could actually see AT-ATs through the snow speeder hull. So they darkened all that. They did a lot of tweaking as well as restore the picture. They did film new scenes, and then they filmed even more scenes for the Blu-ray. But by and large, it's not Sully. There's nothing in here that upsets people to the degree of Han shooting first. But the starting of this film, one thing to notice about Star Wars is something I truly appreciate, especially I appreciate it more as a podcast producer, is their patterns to openings. Every movie you start a long time ago with this galaxy far, far away, Star Wars logo, scroll, and then you pan to something in space. And this is the film that said, this is what we're doing every time. It's not just what we did last time. I think eventually it will change. I'm not sure if they're going to keep doing that with Rogue One and the anthology films, but here it's established. And I had the record for this, the 33 RPM, because this didn't come out on VHS for a long time and I never got it on HBO. I listened to the record abridgment of this probably 
500 times as a kid. And the sound of those probe droids shooting off into space is just burned into my memory as the start of this. And man, I was afraid of probe droids as a kid. Those things looked evil. Yes, I said I, this past summer, I watched this with Kira, my stepdaughter, who's seen it for the first time. And yeah, she was freaked out by that probe droid. Just, just it, it, it reminds me of the Sentinels from The Matrix. They just look like these big crabby bugs or something. Yeah, I was going to go with War of the Worlds, the Martian tripod. But yeah, they definitely, I think by going with that classic design, it tells you, even if you didn't recognize this was an Imperial ship, and people like me may not have, <laughs> if they, we can just tell from the design. I don't know what it is, but there's something about the design that almost tells you instantly when uh, it's a good guy or a bad guy. Why are TIE fighters more threatening than X-Wings? I don't know. I guess they look like bats? Maybe. Or bow ties, and never trust yeah. someone that wears a bow tie. Neither one do I want. You're right. <laughs> Yeah, the way it just crashes onto the planet and comes up, and it's got that language. I mean, just the sounds Ben yes. Bird put there. I mean, it's like evil incarnate from the very beginning. And I like that it starts with this ominous feel. This is the darkest of the Star Wars films. This is the one that's acclaimed by... 90s Gen Xers when they liked to listen to Morrissey in their dorms is the best because it was dark and ended on a down note. I think it's from Clerks. That's what life is, a series of down endings. So Empire Strikes Back's the most relevant to real world. <laughs> I hope it's not too relevant. They're looking for Luke, right? Are they going to recognize him? Because he don't look the same. Well, that's because a Wampa scratched him in the face. <laughs> or he crashed a car. Yeah. Yeah, I thought I heard that he crashed a motorbike between Star Wars and Empire Strikes Back. That's funny. I thought it was a Corvette in summer, but... But he does look different here, and I didn't know whether they gave him this opening injury as a way of covering something going on with his face, or whether he just aged and naturally, and he just doesn't look like the fresh-faced kid from Star Wars. And that's appropriate, but it is surprising. Yeah, from what I've read, they weren't trying to cover up. There's no scars or anything to cover up, but he did have a different look because of that accident. But that's not why they had this Wampa or this abominable snowman, as we'll call it for Stuart, attack <laughs> him you. and scratch his face. <laughs> yeah, I've read the same thing. There was a lot of speculation that the entire Wampa attack at the beginning, the scars on his face, were just there to provide an in-movie reason yeah. for Mark Hamill's changed appearance. But most official statements go, no, they wanted this to happen to Luke because they needed him to get this vision of Obi-Wan Kenobi, Sir Alec Guinness returning. And of the behind-the-scenes stuff, and like I said last time, there's so much, I can't go into it all, but I find this very interesting. The Alec Guinness scenes were filmed almost dead last in production, and they filmed most of this movie, including the scenes where Luke is talking to Ben, without knowing if Sir Alec Guinness would return. I'm going to compliment. I think the acting is overall better in this film. They got mm. an actual director, but Alec Guinness, like, he looks like he has zero Fs to give, like, to <laughs> me. He's just like, oh, you're dragging me back to do this space film? Okay. He's giving the performance I thought he was going to give in the last movie because I remembered how dismissive he was about participating in this saga. I thought that it was going to be reflected in his performance. But no, he was good last week. He's not as good here. I'm not going to, you know, he, he's on here for what, all of 30 seconds. I'm not going to lay a major case that he sucks, but I, I do feel like... 
he has less of a chance to make an impact, and in his brief moments, he really doesn't. Yeah, it was very rushed filming. His statements at the time, and everything I've read corroborates this, is he was having an eye problem that prevented him from being in front of lights, and he was medically unable to film stuff. But because they waited and he was getting better every day after some surgery and Lucas had to personally literally wine and dine him, had to fly to England and take Alec to his favorite restaurant. They had to do the hard sell to get him back and they got him back. This is what they got. Before we get to Luke seeing Obi-Wan here, he gets caught by that Wampa, he gets put in the ice cave. I want to compliment the special edition here because that Wampa, there's barely any Wampa in the original cut. Like, you get this side shot of it, and it literally looks like someone's, like, rolling a mannequin, like, with a bunch of fur on it. Like, they've (laughs) gone back, and I think it's still some dude in a costume, but he's sitting there chewing on a tauntaun leg or something. It adds to that feel. It adds to the menace, which I like in that special edition, being able to actually see more of that monster. I'll split the difference with you, but first of all, Jacob, have you ever seen the original footage of the Wampa from the Empire Strikes Back shoot? No. It's hysterical. I know there's deleted scenes where, like, C-3PO's unleashing the Wampas to attack snowtroopers, but I've never actually seen that footage. Yeah, it is really bad. There was footage of the Wampa coming, and yeah, for those who don't know, the intent was the Rebels had a room full of captured Wampas on their base, and C-3PO walks past it in the final cut. None of this Wampa stuff looked any good. And in the old version, it had this weird kind of slow-mo thing going on so that they could extend it and just try to cut around it, but never really show the Wampa. You kind of saw the arm. It was all very weird. So they fixed that with the special edition, but yet the new scenes, they just don't seem to match to me. I can tell where they filmed the new guy in the Wampa suit eating that bloody bone with the petroleum jelly falling off his lips. And something often overlooked, this is the first time we see Jedi as telekinetic. Luke calling that saber to his hands? I never thought much about it, but we never saw anything like that last time. It's an effective moment. I don't have any stronger memories of it than what I see here. I don't know how to compare it to what I saw in 1980, but it was gross then. It's gross now. And as someone that was a fan of horror, even back at that age, I liked this vibe more. It was like we were in a scary troll monster movie, and that was more appealing. Yeah, I like, I mean, we haven't talked about the Tauntauns, but I just like the creatures here. Like, yeah. I guess what, the Tauntauns are supposed to be hairy lizards or something, mm-hmm. if I'm remembering my lore correctly. That is right. But are they not native to Hoth? Because Han's going to take one out at night to go find Luke, and it's too cold for it. It's going to die. So were, were these also brought there? I, I, I'm just, I want to know about the zoology of Hoth here. Well, there's a... Lot of lore around them because they appear in a whole bunch of video games, but most stuff says they are native to Hoth and were domesticated by the rebels. Okay. So it just gets too cold at night. They, they got to be burrowing in their holes or something. Yeah. Everyone goes indoors. Even the Wampa's like in the <laughs> cave. He's not like loving the zero degrees. <laughs> I have a, a question for you, Stuart. Han's going to go out to look for Luke. Important question. Okay. Is Han's coat blue or brown? <laughs> Choose wisely. Um, my mind, I said blue, but I don't know. Yeah, that's 
the argument. Here's the whole thing is because of the filters they used on filming some of this. Sometimes the coat looked blue. Sometimes the coat looked brown. And so they've released action figures of, and statues of both. Yes. Oh, okay. The thing is, when I watched the original cut, yeah, it looks very blue. When I watched the cleaned up footage, it actually does have a brown tint. It changed my mind. I couldn't go with Greedo shooting first, but I could abide with the brown coat now for Han. And the actual prop that has been displayed is a brown coat, but they used a lot of blue filters when they were filming this. Plus, people's memory is the toy. I had the toy. It was a very cool toy because it had the hood all the way up. It was the only Hoth figure that looked kind of like I did going to school in kindergarten with the big (laughs) furry hood. So, yeah, everybody thinks it's blue from that. The palette here is all blues anyway. I mean, it's a cold ice world. So I just, that's what I'm thinking about here. It's the exact opposite of where we started on Tatooine. I mean, I think that must have been a choice, right? We're going to introduce you to a new world that has visuals 180 degrees away from what you saw before, but kind of give you stuff you've seen before. You're going to get very quickly, in case you'd forgotten what a lightsaber can do, another scene of it chopping off somebody's arm. Yeah, and that's one thing I will ding Star Wars on. We said last time this isn't science fiction, it's space fantasy, but the entire thought that there's a planet and it's desert from North Pole to South Pole, and now there's a planet that's ice from North Pole to South Pole, it's an overly simplistic... I mean, we're gonna, come on, we're gonna go to a planet that's swamp from North Pole to South Pole, and eventually we'll get to a planet that's city, and a planet that's lava. To me, that is just how the Star Wars galaxy works. It's charm. I I have no ding for that. It doesn't bother me a bit. I actually, it helps me. It helps me know where I am. It helps me orient in this universe. I want to just compliment this film, though, because this isn't some Pinewood Studio set. This is really cold, really in Norway, real snow. Yeah, I think I read stories like where the crew is like standing inside a doorway all warm where they send like Mark Hamill out into the snow to go do some scene. And it it looks miserable. I mean, if shooting in the desert was bad with the wind blowing the sand all over the equipment. Now they're in the snow. Lucas, pick a tropical island planet. (laughs) I'm sure the cast would like it. But yeah, they got blizzards that were unexpected and did just have to open the back door of the hotel and throw actors out in it. Where is Hoth in comparison to where the Death Star was at the end of the movie? How far away did they run? Far, far away. Again, there are maps if you'd like me to pull one. (laughs) No, no. I mean, I... I, They're shooting these probes like all over the place, though. They didn't specifically target this planet. These probes are going in all different directions looking for rebels. Yeah, they set out... They say it. Thousands of probe droids across the galaxy. This one probe droid happens to get lucky. Leia, we've seen her. She's been giving these glances to Han during this interaction while they're wondering about Luke. And she still, it looks, still looks like the white outfit. Now it's a snow outfit. And she's got the hair. It's not in the buns, but it's still up. Like, she does have a similar look, but... Like right here, I want to start complimenting the direction these actors are getting and how they're able to do something with their characters. I love like these icy looks that she keeps like throwing towards Han and like you could feel tension here before it took so long to get those three main characters together where I really felt like here are characters where I like how they're working almost right away. Like I'm getting tension. I'm getting drama. I'm getting that with these two characters in this film. 
They've dropped the whole Luke has a thing for Leia thing. I mean, they avoid putting those two characters on screen. I think they spend most of the movie apart here. So they really allow Han to demonstrate that all of a sudden, even though last week he was too cool for Leia, that he really does have a thing for her. And more importantly, he wants her to admit that she has a thing for him. Obviously, this is taking place years after... Is it? A New Hope. The canon explanation is that this is three years later. Oh, I thought it was like six months. No, there's apparently three years between A New Hope and Empire, and then one year between Empire and Jedi. But even given that, having just watched A New Hope, it seems like a lot of this romance stuff has been going on behind the scenes, because I didn't get this kind of attraction, let alone mutual attraction, from the last film. Well, there's still backstory going on that we're not told, which I'd like. Han's going to talk about, oh, I still owe Jabba this money, and we had that run-in with that bounty hunter on whatever planet or system that he mentions. There feels like time has passed. They've had other adventures. Maybe those would be shown in a TV series, or maybe now Disney will produce them into full-featured films. But I like that I feel like, okay, this is the next installment, but these characters just didn't stop for three years. They still had adventures. He's still emotionally in the same place he was really at the climax of Star Wars. He's got what he needed and he's ready to go. He's a little more loyal now. I mean, he definitely, I I think he's got some kind of rank here. He's a captain or something. Yes. Although I never was sure if he was Captain Solo because he was captain of his own ship or if he had a rebel rank. Yeah, I I took it as a rebel rank, but maybe not. I mean, he got a medal and, and Luke got a promotion too. I mean, they're calling him commander for the whole thing. I guess that's what you get for blowing up the Death Star. Yeah, he now leads the rogue group of fighter pilots. But Han still very much, I think, wants to go off on his own and be the wandering loner. I think that's just in his blood. And I think with the exception of Chewie, he could walk away from all of this. Even Leia. He just wants to hear that Leia would like him to stay. Possibly. I read it differently. I mean, again, I've read a lot of expanded universe stuff. My view of these films is tinged with all the rest that I've seen and read. But what I get is he really thinks he does have to leave because Jabba the Hutt has put a bounty on his head to kill him. So it's not just a matter of wanting to leave the rebels. Something happened to keep him there for three years, but he does have to go. Yeah, and this is the first time he uses the expression, your highness, right? I always enjoyed that about Han Solo, the dismissiveness of her royalty and this banter that they have. You know, it was a lot funnier when I was a kid, but I like the spirit of it. It feels very much like a 30s screwball comedy. It kind of feels like an Indiana Jones bat with Kate Capshaw or Karen Allen. Well, it's better than anything he had with Kate Capshaw. (laughs) You say you liked this as a kid. I like this now. The banter is fun for me. This is some of the best dialogue of the entire Star Wars saga here. I mean, Empire in general, but this in particular is just fun, funny. The turns of phrase, the subtleness of some of it. I like it a lot. Yeah, we're going to get 25 minutes of stuff, and it's not all drama. I mean, there's, yeah, we're attacking a wampa, and we're slicing tauntauns to stuff Luke into, but 25 minutes until those AT-ATs attack, which I would consider, like, the first, like, action sequence of this film, but I'm not bored. I'm not waiting for that because I do enjoy the interactions here. I feel like the actors are more comfortable, the direction's better. Yeah, I like Han and Leia bickering back and forth. And both of them are at their acting best in this film, I think. Carrie, perhaps aided by the cocaine she was 
allegedly using during the time. <laughs> the making of book written back at the time discussed her having trouble with call sheets because she was out at parties. But I think they both really bring their A game. And I think that everyone got better here, honestly. I mean, I don't know whether it's they're more comfortable in their roles and they know how to do it and and they know that they're not in an embarrassing movie or if that, yes, maybe because there's a different director there. I'm trying not to dog too much on Lucas. I'd like to believe that even if he were officially directing this movie, they would be giving this level of performance. But it's better. Across the board for me, I feel like I like all of these characters more. Even the C-3PO-R2-D2 banter is better in this one, I think. Starting off at the beginning, where R2-D2 melted the princess's room and her clothes are all soaked. I mean, and this quoting of the odds, I think these are some of C-3PO's most well-known, well, I'm coming from people, including myself, who can quote all of C-3PO's lines, (laughs) but the odds are a big one. But no, these are the ones. Yeah, when he keeps calling the odds of everything, like that is what I think of when I think of 3PO. Yeah, everything from Leia's hair to, yeah, the C-3PO jokes. It's better here. And I had another like evocative moment. You know, I talked about last time how all of a sudden I I saw that pile of burning Jawas and I was like, woo, this movie is getting to me in a way I never thought before. When Han goes out to rescue Luke and he has to slice open that tauntaun and stick him in the innards (laughs) to keep him warm. I don't know. That did something to me. I I haven't stopped thinking about it. (laughs) Scientifically accurate. They have tested that on Mythbusters and it would work. Well, we don't know the internal body temperature of a tauntaun. They made some assumptions based on actual animals on Earth. Yeah, it's a real squeamish moment here. It really shakes you up. I think what Lucas can get in trouble with, at least for me watching Star Wars, is it can feel very stilted. Like he's all concerned about recreating images and moments from past movies, and they don't have life to them. But when you see something like that, you're like, oh, it's alive. It jumps out at you. Even when Han, when he goes to rescue Luke, and they're like, oh, you're going to freeze, and he's like, well, I'll see you in hell. Now, I don't want to get into the theological explorations of this galaxy far, far away if they have concepts of hell, but it feels like a real raw moment. Like, when he goes off, like, you feel like, oh, crap, Luke really is in danger because Han is, like, so angry. It it has a different feeling than it did last week. Yeah, they feel like there are stakes. When they close that door with Han and Luke both out from the rebel base, just the looks of sadness on Chewbacca and Leia's faces there, it does get you in the sound effects as that door closes with the big thud. Yeah, they don't have much to do, and I don't know that they ever will, but I feel like maybe Chewie just works as a chorus. He he gives the roar at the right moment, or or we cut to him at just the right thing. He can push somebody around when they're not being helpful enough. I, I appreciate what he does, but yeah, it's in moments like this where he actually gets to have one of the few times he impacts at me. I mean, it's one of the few times I think about Chewie. You'll notice I never bring him up in my remembrances of the plot. But it really isn't too long before Luke is in a diaper and a back to tank (laughs) again another thing that i thought a long time about when i was a kid i mean he goes through a lot here slashed up face he's gonna lose his arm yeah submerged in a tank of water i just feel like it's punishing watching luke in this movie yeah that freaked me out when he for some reason him being in a diaper like always (laughs) freaked me out as a kid yeah it's just not right. Freaked me out more that he was like unconscious underwater and they were giving him electric shocks or something. His body's convulsing there. He's got the breathing tube. That freaked me out as a kid. And now, of course, I own the action figure. They actually made Diaper <laughs> yes. Luke and Tank. 
<laughs> I imagine they made every moment in this film in plastic form. Well, I did just get the Torn Far action figure. She's the female who says prepare ion control. <laughs> the one other female in this movie. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't remember that scene, funny enough. But uh, you mentioned the ad-ad attack. That was one thing I definitely, one of the first memories that came back to me. It was one of the, actually, I think, one of the coolest designs of the whole franchise. I think when I think of Star Wars, one of the neatest mechanics is watching these like robotic camels come at them. It's the way that it's filmed. It's the way that they look. And they could have started here. You're right. You're absolutely right, Jacob. If they wanted to throw us more into the story, they could have literally opened with AT-ATs landing on Hoth and attacking the base. But I got to say, I love the buildup to the AT-ATs. Like, we're going to go on to an Imperial ship and see Darth Vader. It seems like he is in charge now in this film. Like, yes. he is the one giving the commands now. He is not the weird wizard walking around, like, choking random people. Well, he's still choking people. People. Well, no, he's still choking lots of people, which I, again, the direction here at one point, because they come out of light speed too close to the planet and they alert the rebels, like he starts choking Ozel. I, I don't know if he's a commander or a general. He's an admiral. Admiral, Admiral Oswald, like he calls up like the screen. You see Admiral Oswald like choking and he's promoting Piet. I got his name. I don't know what his rank is. Well, he's now Admiral Piet. Yeah, exactly. That's the joke. <laughs> but I, I love the way Piet's just like, he's looking at Oswald, like he's side-eyeing him as this guy's choking, but also trying to pay attention to the command he's getting. There is a dark humor in some of this stuff here. Invader is just going rampant this time with the choking and taking all his own people out. And we do get the march this time. Arnie, you oh, mentioned yeah. it. Wasn't in the last movie, but I noticed it instantly. When we get Vader... And he's in this new command. Yeah, he gets his new march, and it's glorious. Yeah, that is great. The AT-ATs, though, I do need to call out creations of Phil Tippett, the stop-motion animator for this, who we talked about ending his stop-motion reign with Jurassic Park and becoming the guy who helped direct the computer animators. That's right, yeah. He was uh, really had, what, 13 more years of, of work. And what was groundbreaking here yeah, would be taken over by CGI. Uh, in 13 years. But these AT-AT designs, while I completely get that in this galaxy far, far away, I don't understand the purpose of a four-legged giant vehicle, it doesn't matter. It's so cool, and that was the first toy in my life I lusted after. I, like, stared at it in that toy yes. shop window. I coveted, Arnie. You had it, and I wanted it so badly. I never told you. <laughs> yeah, I remember I, there was a cousin that had it, and I just my parents couldn't afford that thing. It was too expensive. But yeah, if things could float, if, if you have levitation, I, I get it if you're like Hannibal going over the Alps or whatever mountains he crossed. Like, these would be the elephants that would take you, but intimidation counts for something. Like, yeah, why not speed in real quick with some TIE fighters and shoot everyone? But this is cool, and I feel like the Star Wars universe, it is set up that it is a visual one. Things are not going to be practical, and that's why, even after all these years as an adult, I'm still going to go with the AT-ATs. Yeah, plus just watching those giant feet crush things, and, and that's the first thing they see in the binoculars. It really just it gives them a menace that if they were just flying ships, they would never have. And the stop motion here works so well because they're mechanical. You wouldn't necessarily expect the smooth movements that you'd expect from a biological tauntaun. And so even in the few moments where the stop motion may be a little bit jittery or a little oversped, it still looks great. I love the way they move and how they turn their head and just effortlessly shoot down the snowspeeders the rebels are piloting. 
Yeah, there's at one point, like one of the adats, like it sticks its leg out to get at this weird angle to shoot a snow speeder. It just gives it enough of a real effect, like that, oh yeah, these things would have to kind of move weird like that, that I totally buy into it. That said, Atari 2600 game sucks. Oh, I was going to bring that up. I, I remember <laughs> playing that so much as a kid. And But that said, though, in 64, Shadow of the Empire, I would just play that Hoth level over and over. The first level on there where you got to take out adats with tow cables on your snow speeder awesome i just play that level over and over but why do the snow speeders have cables are they tugboats or would they usually bring in other ships it it seems convenient but it's a cool way to take down these giant beasts and i love the design of the snow speeders i love the detail that they have the little flaps when they turn left and turn right and they're so much smaller than the x-wings and everything it really gets you in that close feel and how there's the guy in back who's the gunner and luke's gunner dak <laughs> is yeah dead meat <laughs> That's so obvious when he, I was like, why is Luke getting a friend in the back? Oh, someone's going to die. Yes. (laughs) Well, Wedge is still there. Wedge, who piloted with Luke at the Battle of Yavin, he's now piloting here too. He's with Jansen and is the people who take down the first Adat. I never notice any of these supporting characters. I feel like they're there basically to die. Hey, Wedge is the unsung hero of the rebellion, played by Ewan McGregor's uncle. Oh, okay. All right. It's just a great battle. There's so many highlights of the series for me, but because of the AT-AT design and the fact that I did get one of those toys for Christmas, I couldn't believe I got one of them. They were $49.99. It was glorious. It really was. I still have it. Gorgeous fight, though. And I like that Luke gets crashed and has to use his lightsaber to take one out. Yeah. It's cool that he, it's one-on-one. I mean, I think it'd be one thing if they took it all down with lassos. That's kind of fun. That's like a Western. But yeah, the fact that he has to get out there on a grappling hook and, you know, I don't know what wire he cut, but it was the right one. It's it's He threw a grenade. It's where we like Luke again. I mean, I feel like Luke goes through so much torture in this. He really doesn't get too many moments for us to rally around him. I don't feel like he gets a blow up the Death Star kind of moment in this movie, but I guess this is it. And meanwhile, Han and Leia are trapped in the base running from snowtroopers. And those things creep me out, too, with their long masks. And they have half capes, like butt capes. Yeah, they look like Ku Klux Klan members without the pointy hoods. They just got rounded hoods. (laughs) I'm serious. There was something about them that scared me like that. They were ghost-like. You know, I think Darth Vader has got a Captain Kirk syndrome. I know that we don't like to usually mix the worlds of Trek and Wars, but why does he feel like he needs to personally be the one to get out there and, like, walk through the base to get the rebels? I mean, you let the underlings do that. I honestly think it's because it's his son, He hasn't really revealed. Does he know that by this point? I don't think he does. Because that scene later with the Emperor makes me believe that he doesn't know it right now. Correct. I think in the 1980 version, it kind of shows he does know it. In the new version, it kind of shows he doesn't. According to the new canon, he does know. Well, even in the old version, I wrote it down. It calls out that they have to look for Luke Skywalker. I don't know. It's muddy. I don't think that was well thought out here. It is a little muddy, but when I was a kid, really young, before Return of the Jedi, so I wasn't even sure if Vader was Luke's dad or not, I took this as he's hunting Luke because Luke blew up his Death Star. You know, it's the most childish of logic of... Why does Cobra go after G.I. Joe every week? Why does Megatron want Optimus dead? It's a vendetta at that point. You blew up my Death Star. I'm after you. So him being there 
makes sense in that regard. The fact that he's Darth Vader and a total badass, I mean, there's no danger to him. No Rebol, as he says it, is going to take him out. <laughs> I do wish when he appeared in holograms, he didn't have a hand on his hips. He looks a little <laughs> silly. <laughs> Are these all the Rebels? Or these can't be all the Rebels, can it? Like, is this like a definitive strike? If they could take the Rebels out here, the Empire has wiped them out? Or is this just the base they happen to find? If you go with EU stuff. What do the books that don't count anymore say? Yeah, there were rebels elsewhere. This was the base, but that didn't mean there weren't others out recruiting more to their cause and things. But this would be a big defeat. Like, if they all got slaughtered here. Let's look at it this way. If you defeat Luke Skywalker, haven't you defeated the rebels? That's my sense. That's my impression, is that if he's this hope, if he's the new and only hope, then yeah, defeating one person kind of means that the whole rebellion goes under. I wouldn't agree with that because he's going to disappear for a period of time in this movie. The rebels have no clue where he is, but they're getting along just fine. I would imagine they'd be pissed about that. He's like, yeah, I'll see you at the rendezvous. And then like, nope, new coordinates. I mean, R2 was like, I don't blame him. (laughs) But Leia has to go out with Han because of convoluted reasons that she can't get to the transport. And of course, the Millennium Falcon is broken. This is where I think the Falcon becomes a character. You know, they have people talking to it. I said last movie, I thought the Falcon was a character in this saga. And here, it really becomes so vital when it's like making these old biplane rotary wind down noises and things. The fight with the Falcon, the fight to repair the Falcon. A friend of mine in college, just when I was watching Star Wars one Sunday said, my only memory of watching those as a kid is they're always fixing something. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, they're holding it is what they're doing is we know how cool it is when it goes into hyperspace. We're waiting for that to happen. It's kind of a funny joke that we have to wait the whole movie. The ship is not going to work right until the very last moment. And I could not remember what they really did for much of this movie. I remembered them getting to Cloud City, but I honestly, it was only at the last second that I remembered the asteroid. I didn't realize it was so much of the middle of this movie was them playing chicken with big (laughs) Imperial destroyers in an asteroid field. Arnie, you said John Williams' score is better here. I agree in this asteroid field stuff. Like, it is one of my favorite. Ba, 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 yes. ba, 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 ba. One of my favorite pieces of music. Ba. Yeah, it goes minor in there. Oh, just this is my favorite bit of music from this one. Absolutely. When they're going through the asteroid. And I love that whole asteroid chase where he's going sideways through the canyon and the TIE fighters are crashing and he's making Star Destroyers crash into each other. It makes me love Han, the Falcon, the Star Wars universe that much more. Do you have a toy of this creature that lives inside one? I don't know if they made one. I have a statue (laughs) and I have an oven mitt. (laughs) That's right. There was the oven mitt they made. Yeah. I'll take the oven mitt. All right. I just gave this movie some high praise, but I'm not going to hold this. I'll say there's a big argument about what the best Star Wars movie is. Stuart, it sounds like you beforehand thought Empire was going to be where you come down. Yeah, always. Yeah. For the longest time, I thought Empire was my favorite. I have switched to the original Star Wars as my favorite. And when it all became drastically clear that Empire had pacing problems was shortly after college. My parents went away on a week's vacation, and I got the keys to their house with the big screen TV. And so I did what any 20-something would do. I threw a party. And we all sat down to watch Star Wars, the whole trilogy in one night. 
I was not at this party. You were not. You were living in Chicago at the time. It doesn't sound like much of a party. It doesn't sound like a Stewart party. <laughs> Ain't no party like an Arnie party, because an Arnie party involves falling asleep during the Empire Strikes Back. All of them, except for me, fell asleep as soon as this asteroid chase ended. And I'm like, yeah, there is a long stretch of this movie where... If you've seen it and you know the mythology, it's like 40 minutes of them building out the universe and explaining the force and introducing us to Yoda. But compared to A New Hope, which is run and gun for almost the whole movie, this thing, like you said, it has 20 minutes before the Adat battle. And then we got like 40 minutes of hiding in an asteroid, running from a Muppet and doing backflips. See, and I'm not feeling that lag here. I like that this is the Empire Strikes Back. The last film was all about this team coming together, and here the team's separated. They have split. Luke and R2's in one corner. The rest have gone off somewhere else. This feels more dangerous to me when they're going through the asteroid field. And then I love the stuff when we get to Dagobah. I just, the way Yoda explains the Force, it's just so eloquent. And I enjoy the puppetry. I enjoy the humor. So I don't feel that lag here. I feel like with the last one as an adult, like, yeah, here's all these great little mini movies uh, that showed me parts of this galaxy. But sitting through this, uh, it does have pacing issues that first hour here. I, I'm not feeling that. Yeah, I remember that being true when I was a kid. I remember thinking that Empire had a great opening and a sucky middle, and it really got good at the end. And now I actually don't find that to be the case at all. But maybe that's because I'm into Luke's journey, and I like what Vader's doing. I'm not really interested in what Han's doing, but I really like the fact that, well, yeah, we get the, a little peek in underneath the helmet... And he's got this cool throne that kind of opens and closes like his helmet comes up and down. There's just nice design things here with the Empire. And yeah, this scene with the Emperor. This is new. I thought this was always in the movie. Well, no, it's always been in the movie. They have reshot. I, I know people have said the Emperor has like a slug on his head or something. Here's what it was. There was an actor named Clive Ravel who was the Emperor when they shot it in 1980. Oh. But they didn't know what they wanted to do with the face of the emperor so they never showed him exactly to us they took like chimpanzee or ape eyes and put them over the actor's eyes in suit in post and so he always had this weird his face isn't quite right quality and I always took it at bad transmission. They're in an asteroid field. I guess they do go out of the asteroid field because they have to contact the Emperor. But I always just said, oh, it's a bad transmission. You can't really see what the Emperor looks like. They want to hide that. But yeah, I have always heard some people have a real problem with the way the Emperor looked in this film, in the original cut. Well, they hired Ian McDermott for Return of the Jedi. He would go on to play the Emperor in the prequels. So he was the definitive one. So when filming Revenge of the Sith and prepping for these Blu-rays, they had Ian McDermott refilm the scenes. But they're not content to stop there. They also added dialogue and changed things around and had... James Earl Jones record a couple new lines. It's a longer scene. And in this longer scene, it's like the Emperor knows that Vader had a kid. 
but Vader doesn't. But yet in the original, I got even the reverse impression that Vader was trying to hide from the Emperor that he has a son. Yeah, that's the impression I get from the original cut is maybe Vader knew and now the Emperor is calling him out on it. Like, hey, we need to get this Luke Skywalker who blew up the Death Star. But at least in the DVD cut, I don't know if they changed it for the Blu-rays, but the DVD special edition. Yeah, they're like, oh, you need to get the son of Anakin Skywalker and Vader's like how is that possible assert your feelings it's yeah Anakin Skywalker wasn't even named until Return of the Jedi and I guess what makes it muddy is like uh, when we get to those prequels we'll get to the whole two Sith rule like it just seems weird that two of them are in on getting someone else but I guess that's just us nerd problems for, for those who pay attention to the prequels well we'll talk about that with Jedi I think this trilogy will answer that I don't know that I even remembered what the exchange is uh, when when they're speaking here. I didn't notice a difference. What was important to me as a kid, and even now, is the fact that you thought Darth Vader was the biggest badass in the universe, and suddenly he's kneeling before somebody else. That made a strong impression to me. I It just never occurred to me. They had dropped the word Emperor before, and it's clear watching Star Wars now that he wasn't the number one, but it's still something to see this ultimate badass who really has knelt to no one before take a subservient role. And here is where we see Lucas making a trilogy. This movie doesn't necessarily stand alone. He's planting seeds for later, showing us the Emperor in this hologram, knowing that he'll be the big villain of the third one. There's Yoda saying, when Obi-Wan says, that boy is our last hope, Yoda says, no, there is another. Well, what's he speaking of? And even Luke kissing Leia passionately on Hoth. There's all these things set up for later. You know what? I don't have a problem with that. So many people, oh, that shows Lucas didn't know the story because he has brother and sister kissing. Well, one, they don't know their brother and sister. She's trying to make Han jealous. And you know what? This is like mythology, Greek myth, lots of incest. That that has never been a problem for me that she kissed her brother who she didn't know they were siblings. Uh, it's a little weird. It's a little flowers in the attic, quite frankly, for my taste. But I think that they do everything they can to keep them off screen. I didn't really notice any big kissing scene. I didn't notice the sparks that existed between Carrie Fisher and Mark Hamill in Star Wars here in Empire Strikes Back. I believe that everything is really about Han and Leia, and we forget about the third spoke of the love triangle. Han and Leia will even get a kissing scene, which I love. Like, they finally, you know, don't touch my hands, they're dirty. Like, uh, I I just feel like if Lucas was directing this, these lines would just be really bad, because we're going to get really bad lines directed by Lucas when we get to the prequel. But yeah, they kiss, and then, of course, C-3PO cock blocks Han, and she kind of slinks away. I just like the acting and, and all the body language and and you get so much about who she is in this relationship just by these nonverbal cues. Yeah, if it was Lucas directing, all the love scenes would be faster, more intense, and it would be, I don't like dirt. It gets under my fingernails and smears everywhere. (laughs) I don't like the stingrays sticking on the windshield. I can't say that. Oh, the Minox? Those things are rocking. They're scary. They are. The sounds they make and the... On the Blu-ray at the home theater was the first time, even seeing this in theaters back in 80 and a re-release and then in 97, but it's the first time I really noticed that what they're stepping on looks glossy and slippery and like innards itself. Are they like 
part of some of the creature's internal organs? Are they like white blood cells or something? They're the thing that <laughs> tips Han off to know that they are inside a living organism. As soon as he sees them flying around, he's starting to make a correlation between stepping on the ground and the quaking that they're getting. No, it's that he shoots and the thing quakes, and then he shoots the ground, and that's when he realizes. I didn't I didn't think it was related to the Minox at all. No, Minox don't live just inside space slugs. They are known to eat on power cables of spaceships everywhere. They can jump on you and break you down in hyperspace. They can be a real issue. And yeah, it's when he gives the space slug indigestion by shooting it from the inside that he's like, okay, we need to get out of here. This isn't Uh, a cave. Okay. Yeah. All right. I can see that. And earlier I said that this part of the movie has pacing problems. I still think it does, but don't get me wrong. I am really enjoying watching Leia give into her feelings for Han. It is the most important arc of The Empire Strikes Back is their relationship. What? Yeah, I think so. I really do. I reevaluate. Try search your feelings. <laughs> you know this to be true. <laughs> no, I do not know. The most important relationship is between Luke and his father. And Ben. Ah, uh, that comes up. It becomes the most important next, next time. Week. <laughs> oh, you're saying this movie? This is the most important relationship in this movie? I do feel like the softening of Princess Leia, like she was so hard in that last film. She's taking the blaster. And this one, she starts off so prickly. I don't want to get on a, a big feminist critique, but I do feel like the softening of Princess Leia is part of her arc here, is, is giving into emotion and, and having and admitting these feelings for Han is an important arc. Yeah, why do you think she does? Or why do you think she was so reluctant to? Is it because this guy's beneath her? Or because no man is good enough for her? I think it's because she's so focused on being a rebel. She's a workaholic. I mean, they did blow up her family and everyone she knows of the planet of which she was a princess. I mean, she has a reason to be mad. Yeah, three years ago. Get over <laughs> it, lady. <laughs> How how over 9-11 are you, Stuart? That was only 3,000 people. Now apply it to Earth. Yeah, you know, she's she's holding the grudge. But no, I, I get you. Yeah, I get that sense is that she's a patriot and she has a passionate need to see the Empire brought down and there's no room in her life for interpersonal relationships. But I also think that she just thinks that she's royalty and better than this guy. This guy doesn't have a title. He doesn't have really anything going for him other than a ship that we'll find out wasn't even his. <laughs> yeah, I do feel like she wants to break this image. You know, you, you called out how he would sarcastically call her your highness. And one of my favorite lines is like, we don't have time to discuss this in a committee. I'm not a committee. I think she does want to overcome how Han Caesar is this prickly politician leader of this rebellion and, and see her as a woman. By the same token, you said yourself, Stuart, that Han doesn't have connections. But here we're seeing the softening of the smuggler's heart. He was ready to leave the rebels and go deal with his bounty hunter thing. He could have left, but he stayed behind to make sure the princess was okay. He was going to get her to her ship, and when she couldn't, she comes on his ship, and he becomes attached. This is their arc. Luke's arc in this one is pretty much 
learn a little bit of tricks and get beat up. <laughs> and Vader's arc in this is a bit more interesting, but the heart of this movie is Han and Leia, and I love it. But I also love the Luke and Yoda stuff, because this is where Star Wars goes from a movie and becomes a religion. This is where the Force really gets explained more than Alec Guinness's little monologue on Tatooine, and where we start learning about the light side, the dark side of the Force, and what the Force can really do. I mean, if you think about that first movie, Obi-Wan may have waved his hand and made people think stuff. Yeah, he did parlor tricks. Yeah, he was not lifting spaceships with his mind and doing backflips and all kinds of things like that. This is really an expansion of Jedi powers. Yeah, it's the movie. I'm sorry, Arnie. I'm not going with Han and Leia. I just, I don't see it. For me, they're almost incidental. They don't really have anything for them to do other than at the end having him get turned into a MacGuffin to rescue in the next movie. But yeah, for me, it's always been about Luke learning to be this Jedi from an unlikely source. Was it always going to be a Muppet? When did they decide on a Muppet? <laughs> it was always going to be a Muppet. Lucas called up his friend Jim Henson and said, I'd like you to come do this. And Henson said, well, I'm kind of busy making my own movie, the Muppet movie, but why don't you work with my good friend Frank? And so we get Grover, the Jedi Master. <laughs> oh, I hated Grover. Why, why do you have to make that connection to my mind? But that's what the voice is most close to. Although when he goes, concentrate, it might sound a little Miss Piggy, too. <laughs> no, it's Grover. And I, I, I could not shake that from me. I feel like, I don't want to say mistake, because I like Yoda so much. But if you've ever seen a Muppet movie, you can't not think of Grover when you hear Yoda. It's could have tried a little bit harder to differentiate. And keep in mind... Mark Hamill's scenes were pretty much a one-man performance with a Muppet far away from everybody else. He said that they all got to get together at the end, but it was like shooting two separate movies, the Han and Leia movie and the Luke movie. And they were more concerned with the placement of snakes and lizards from, if you listen to his side of things, than his actual acting. Yeah, it was, here you go. There, there were so many technical challenges with Yoda and the sets and everything else that he was kind of left on his own. But what I don't get from his performance, he generously gives to Frank Oz because we are completely dependent upon Mark Hamill to sell us that Yoda is alive. And most of the time, it really works to this day. Yoda, by the time I'm 10 minutes into the movie, I'm not paying attention to the foam ears wiggling and all of that. I just think of him as a character and completely go with him as if he were a person. I'm impressed how well this puppet holds up. We'll talk about CGI versions of Yoda in a few weeks, but this puppet, yeah, there's a few times where I'm like, ah, those lips don't quite go with what he's saying, but overall, this thing holds up well, it looks good, and I love the acting that Frank Oz, I mean, you know, this isn't just a dude with a, his hand up a puppet's ass. Yoda <laughs> is able to emote and the, his transformation from this weird, crazy little goblin fighting with Art 2, hitting him with his gimmer stick to have that flashlight to, like, when he turns to this Jedi Master, totally buy into it. You say goblin, but I'm thinking Hobbit, right? I mean, again, Lord of the Rings. <laughs> and he has a relationship that he must have always been talking with his fellow student, Obi-Wan Kenobi, that did they always have a link? Death didn't have any impact here, but they speak to each other from beyond the grave like they're a married couple. I'm guessing they talk more now that he's dead than they ever could while he was alive, actually. <laughs> mm, yeah, 
It's funny how that works. But I also think that Yoda went a little bit senile on that planet. I mean, when he shows up, he's hysterical. Mine, mine, or I will help you not. And all of the craziness, I understand it's a test for Luke, but by the same token, it's a side of Yoda I really like, and I don't think we ever get to see this again. There was one Yoda book that really kind of delved into this, and it's no longer canon, but I like playful, I'm going to hit R2-D2 with my Gimmer stick Yoda. Yeah. I always did take it as maybe he's gone a little bit crazy, like, but yeah, it is a test as well. But he does know a lot. He says that he's been watching this boy like he knows all about Luke I don't, I don't know if Ben was calling him up from Tatooine doing a long distance call or he was just seeing things through the force but he's been keeping tabs on Luke Skywalker this whole time I took it as the force I mean when he says this one a long time have I watched I think he's being pretty literal he's kind of a stalker <laughs> Yeah, I mean, we're going to find out he knows Luke exists and who his father is. I mean, he even says that he knew his father. So he's known, yeah, tap into the force and pay attention to what's going on with him. Didn't the last movie tell us that Ben was the last Jedi? No, uh, he said the Jedi are all but extinct. (laughs) Ben's a big liar, we're going to find out. (laughs) Wow, that's a uh, subtle nuance there, Arnie. But I thought they were telling me that Ben was the last and thus why Luke was the new hope, because there was going to be another one and he had some vitality to him. But hey, if you believe the frickin' cartoon series, there's Ahsoka out there and Kanan. I mean, there's, there's Jedi everywhere for some reason. Oh, wait, Ahsoka doesn't die in the prequels? No. Oh. (laughs) (laughs) We'll get there. Not recommend. (laughs) But what Lucas said was basically by killing off Obi-Wan in the first one, he's like, well, we need an Obi-Wan in this one. So they came up with Yoda, even older, shorter. They never have revealed what species Yoda is, and that was by Lucas' decree. They could never reveal it. I don't know if Disney will now make up something, but I always wondered if he might be a human, because you look at like a 95-year-old woman, and their (laughs) ears are huge, and their nose is huge, and their skin is shrinking. Maybe if you live 900 years, you end up green-skinned, and your ears get that big and pointy. Yeah, I agree. But, you know, I always thought he was some kind of critter. Again, the Hobbit is my reference. Something humanoid, but its own distinct cute little thing. And the fact that he is 900 years old kind of throws me. It it makes me to believe that he was there at the founding of Jedi. I guess I'll get answers in the prequels. I don't remember anything about it. No, no. For over a thousand generations, the Jedi Knights were the guardians of peace and justice in the Old Republic. So that would be about 20,000 years. Oh, generations, not a thousand years. Okay, I gotcha. Okay. One thing I think is interesting once Yoda reveals himself and starts talking about what being a Jedi is, is that it's passive. It's for knowledge and defense. You're not supposed to go on the attack. You think of the Jedi as going out and fighting Darth Vader, but I guess Luke will learn he has a failure in this cave built from the dark side. He's not supposed to use his weapons. He's supposed to wait for, I guess, evil to come to him. And this is back to the Eastern philosophy. Yes. I mean, if yeah. you look at karate, they say that it's to be used for defense. 
I always thought when I took karate, that was to avoid lawsuits. <laughs> I think that's actually the spiritual center is you don't become a karate master so that you can beat people up and be a bully. You're supposed to have the spiritual maturity to go along with the physical prowess. And so, yeah, this is where it really gets defined and it's it gets sticky. Like, we're going to talk about this more next time, but it's like, yeah, use it for attack. And it's in this one. Once down the dark path you begin, forever will it dominate your destiny. So pick up that lightsaber once in anger. Forever will it dominate your destiny. That's a little cynical, I think. I mean, I don't know. We all have our bad days. Well, we'll see what Yoda goes through, though, when we get through the prequels. Maybe he has a reason to be so cynical. Knows who his father is. <laughs> what should have happened in that cave? Luke, he's done some training. He senses like he has to go off into this cave where the dark side is strong. And Yoda says, don't take your weapons. He goes in there and he faces off against Vader, who ends up being Luke himself when that he cuts off the head and the mask explodes and he sees his own face. I could never tell what that was on VHS or anything on a, you know, 24 inch TV. I'm like, <laughs> yes, what is in there? <laughs> Yeah, I agree. I actually thought that we were just looking at Darth Vader. I don't know that as a child I realized it was Luke. But this is creepy. I gotta say, this is the kind of, like, scene you don't expect in this kind of movie. Dream sequences and visions like this, it's risking being too dark for the cheery world they created. Would he have been attacked if he didn't take his weapons? Would it have been a different vision? What would have happened? Because it's called a failure that he did this, that he took his blaster and his lightsaber there oh interesting i hadn't put that together or is it because he went in looking for a fight he found a fight if he'd gone in without his weapons would vader not have been there yeah i get the sense that you conjure whatever is in your mind in this cave and his worst fear is is he supposed to know that he's connected to vader then on, on some level is the force telling him that he's your father before he finds it out that's one way to look at it. The way I've read about it and the way I look at it, and especially in hindsight of Return of the Jedi, it's not saying Vader's your dad. It's saying you could become Vader. Yeah. Ah, okay. That's how I've always taken it. Is this, yeah, and you're right, Arnie. In Return of the Jedi, there's a very specific scene where Luke sees himself becoming Vader, and th that is the danger, not necessarily that he's related to the guy. I don't know that Luke gets it out of this, but he get something. I think mostly he learns to do backflips and one-handed handstands while floating rocks. And again, if they had gone with my casting choice of Bruce Lee, they wouldn't have to CGI and puppet all of this stuff. He could have really done it. There was no CGI. Well, okay, yes, no CGI. I figured there might be CGI now that they cleaned up something, but obviously not back in 1980. But my favorite Yoda moment is Luke is doing all these flips and climbing vines to learn about the Force, but it's when that X-Wing sinks into the swamp and Luke is given the task to raise it out and, and completely fails. We get that, I wanted to go to Tashi Station, pick up Coward Converters Luke again at this point. He is such a quitter and such a whiner. You know what, though? You say this is your favorite Yoda moment. My singular favorite shot of Yoda is here. When he tells Luke to lift the X-Wing and Luke starts to do it. The ship raises a little bit, and they cut to Yoda, and kudos to Frank Goss for pulling yeah. it off. Yoda looks like, 
Holy crap, he's really gonna do it. This kid is even more powerful already than I thought. That's what I get from Yoda's face, and then it falls back in. But for a brief moment, Yoda's like, whoa. And I love his size matter not monologue here, you know. It's so eloquent, you know. We'll talk about midichlorians, but when he's just talking about this energy that surrounds us and binds us and how we're luminous beings, not this crude matter. They're even in that Grover voice. It, it's just beautiful Eastern philosophy poetry going on. Yeah, by the time we get here, I forget all about Grover. I'm into it and I'm thinking about how beautiful a concept it is you know you can't judge yoda by his size and all of that it's mm, great stuff so question you only got money to enroll in one college class you either take the force from alec guinness or from frank oz which one frank oz absolutely frank oz i mean he is more eloquent about it. He didn't train somebody to kill all the Jedi in the galaxy. He's got a better track record. He's got more experience. I'd I'd say he's the PhD and Obi-Wan's got the masters. Yeah, Obi-Wan does seem a bit more reckless than Yoda. Yoda doesn't want to train Luke at first. He's like, he's too old. He's too angry. And Obi-Wan's like, well, he's just like I was when you trained me. And I love that image of Obi-Wan. I mean, when Yoda says, you are reckless. Obi-Wan says, so was I. I never pictured Alec Guinness as reckless. How did that happen? How did he train to become so wizened? How did that happen? And it happened at the hand of Yoda. And again, the way Obi-Wan taught Luke and then Yoda taught Luke, from this movie, I take it that that's how Yoda taught Obi-Wan. Like it was a one-on-one master apprentice kind of thing. They wandered the galaxy with Sword fights. Illusion to be shattered soon. I was about to say, won't we find this out? Oh, we, we will. will. <laughs> but I just want to say now what I what the ideal would be. <laughs> oh, okay. I don't remember what we're going to get, but I hear between the lines what you're saying. I got to agree. I, I would take Yoda's class. I would do it online, though. I would not do well in this swamp environment. I cannot deal with being that murky and wet. I feel bad for R2 during this because he gets eaten by a swamp monster. Well, I got to ask you about that, Arnie, because in my original cut, one of my favorite lines is like, oh, it's a good thing you don't taste too good because this monster spits him out that line is gone from the special edition why get rid of that line all right i can give you the answer i was given directly from lucasfilm i don't believe it but i'll (laughs) tell you what they say back in the 80s and Stuart, maybe you can validate some of this when they were making prints different prints went out with different sound mixes that had different takes of lines even and so in 1980 some people were sitting in a theater that said you're lucky you don't taste very good which matches mark hamill's lips and in other theaters some people were hearing a print that said you were lucky to get out of there which was done in looping now they said that when they did the special editions they picked from the different audio tracks. So because the one audio track with which we're so familiar was the one that went on VHS, and I might just add also the one that went on that 33 RPM LP, that we think it's a change when it's not. But when they said they were releasing the original originals on DVD, my first question to that Lucasfilm rep was, so which audio mix are we getting? (laughs) And he gave me this little look like, you son of a bitch. I said, the VHS ones. Like, you really know there's no audio mix thing, right? That's kind of what I was reading between the lines. I think Lucas just 
decided he didn't want humor there. I like the you were lucky you don't taste very good line. Yeah, it's a great line. Yeah. Uh, the weird thing is, I thought he did say that. I, I guess I was... <laughs> you remember it. I guess, yeah. I think that that's happening in this movie is that I'm I'm recalling things that... You're saying things that aren't in the new version and I'm like, no, that happened. But I guess it didn't. It's just uh, where your mind and your memory meets present day. But... Kenny Baker and the puppeteers who do R2-D2 are up there with Frank Oz and Yoda because when R2 stuck out in the rain and can only look in the window of Yoda's hut. Goes on his tippy toes. Yeah, and he's going, I feel bad for the poor Jordan. I'm laughing when he's getting hit with the stick. R2-D2 is a necessary foil during these scenes. When he's getting lifted up and he starts making those sounds and things, I think he's a good third presence as an outside observer to all this mystical as Han would say, tricks and nonsense. He kind of plays the chewy role. He's the chorus there. He's there to let us know what to think. And I love the part where, yeah, after being swallowed by that monster, he like vomits out all the mud. He, he provides some humor because we're going to get into some deep emotional stuff here. And R2 is a nice grounding effect. Why is it necessary to have anyone in this R2-D2 suit, for lack of a better word? It doesn't appear that the puppeteer would have any opportunity to do anything. You notice how he shakes back and forth sometimes? And the turning of the head and the timing of it, you're dealing with much more rudimentary remote control features back then. In the prequels, Kenny Baker, there was like one shot just so they could put Kenny Baker in the credits. There'd be one shot of the man in the can. But during the prequels, it was actually required to have somebody in there to help operate the machine. Oh, okay. Yeah, I guess I'm just assuming that they could have done it all with wires and remote control, but it just doesn't feel like a performance. And yet there's a little person in there, Kenny Baker, doing a lot of that. So kudos to him. I guess it's a compliment to him that I would just assume that it was so fluid that it felt like a robot. I never thought that it was somebody turning wires and pulling knobs. But then... Han and Leia get to Cloud City while Luke is lifting some rocks. Cloud City, is there, like, based off of a, you know, some planets are just gas. Is there a planet below them? Like, there's obviously an atmosphere. They're miners, so they must be mining something. I figured they're mining gases, like, up in these clouds. Huh. That's a weird concept. I can't visualize that. Yeah, they're freezing. They got the carbon freeze. I, I figured that's how they got these gases around. Oh, interesting. I would have liked to have seen that in motion. Well, carbon freezing was used to transport goods, you know, so that they didn't spoil. Bespin is a planet like Jupiter, a gas giant. Okay, it is a gas planet. Yeah, it has a solid core where Luke's hand ended up landing. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) And according to Timothy Zahn's novels, the Imperials then went and retrieved it so they could clone Luke. I haven't read it, but yes, I know that storyline. They turn him into the Emperor. Wow. Well, that's actually a different storyline, too. Oh, okay. That's Dark Empire in the comics. I'm talking about when they make Luke, L-U-U-K-E, the clone of Luke, from his hand on the planet. Puke. Oh, okay. I thought they turned, yeah, I thought they turned the clone Luke into the Emperor, but all right. <laughs> no, he was just a mindless fighter. Jeez. Oh, all right. But yeah, it's just a gas planet. They're mining Tabana gas. Depending on what book you're reading that week, Tabana gas can do different things. That doesn't matter anymore. Yeah. Has any company ever spent money better than Colt 45? I got to say, every time I see Billy D. Williams, I think about his advertisements for that malt liquor, and he's in one of the most famous movies of all time. So, I mean, amazing. He had done those ads before. 
empire, right? No, Billy D started his Colt 45 stuff in the 80s. This movie came out in 80. Oh, okay. But hey, I guess his ads work every time for you. <laughs> well, I don't drink it, but I do think about it every time I see him smile. And boy, what a fun character. In his own way, he's every bit as charming as Harrison Ford here. I didn't really remember Lando Calrissian from watching him as a kid. I think I didn't like him because of the way he betrays the good guys. But knowing that now, I actually think it's in character. It's something that Han would do if the shoe were on the other foot. And I love the script, the acting here, like the, you know, Han's all talking up Lando, and then he's like, well, Chewie, be careful here, you know, like, you get the sense, oh, maybe we can't totally trust Lando, and then Lando comes out, and he does this whole act where he's, like, all serious, and uh, then he breaks out into the smile, I... This is engaging stuff. We didn't get this last week, this kind of acting, this kind of writing, this kind of synergy between the characters. And I just love his introduction. I mean, when he comes out and he's acting all pissed off, you got a lot of guts coming here after what you pulled. And then they're hugging and laughing. I mean, I have not seen Billy D in anything that he did before Star Wars, to my knowledge. I did see him in Undercover Brother after the fact, <laughs> but I never saw his black exploitation stuff. But he is charming, likable, mm -hmm. and it creates a new love triangle. He's after the princess immediately. Yes. <laughs> yes. And you did mention in your plot summary that this is the first time we're seeing a person of color in the Star Wars universe. I actually think that, you know, in Lucas's defense... That probably the reason why when you look at Star Wars, it's all white is because his whole frame of reference was World War II movies where all the actors were all white. And so he was just studiously recreating a vision uh, that was in his mind from his childhood here. Because someone else is doing this, I'm imagining, did Kirshner, was he the one that picked Lando? My memory is they intended to bring someone of color there because of some feedback on Star Wars. And I just always thought because it was filmed in the UK, it was all white. I mean, do they yeah. have black people there? Yes, they do. <laughs> oh, yes. Hey, come on, attack the block. We review that. That's right. We, That's we, right. Yes. But yeah, I think you make a good point is that, yes, it was just not in their mind's eye to do it back in the original. But of course, somebody would have made the point that it needed to change for sequels. And I'm glad they did. And Cloud City's very diverse. I mean, Billy D's up front and center, but you have Asians and African-Americans and all kinds of people there running around with ice cream makers. <laughs> Are you talking about the guy with the Walkman? No, I'm talking no, about the no, guy with the ice cream maker, Wilrow Hood. There is someone named Ice Cream Maker Man or Wilrow Hood. Wilrow Hood, yeah. <laughs> but no, Lobot, yeah, with his headset he's i guess he's a cyborg he's got those implants in his head i always thought patrick stewart played that part i don't know why i guess i thought every bald <laughs> british bald. man yes every bald british man must be patrick stewart but he was in dune and maybe crawl life force he did a lot of that sci-fi but i guess not star wars this cloud city stuff though my watching this time with the now playing goggles it's it's funny to me how fast things turn my memory is luke lands on dagobah and there's a long time before he knows yoda is the Jedi Master. And then I watch it this time. It's like, no, it's the next time we cut back to them. And I always think there's all this time on Cloud City. There's a couple of scenes. I mean, C-3PO walks into the wrong room and gets blown up. They 
build the suspense on this one. C-3PO's blown up, people start to know things are going wrong, but it really doesn't take too long before Lando Calrissian is serving Han and company up for dinner to Vader. And, I mean, it should be said, when he thought of even coming here, Chewbacca, we don't know what he says because he just growls, but Chewbacca was the one to point out that there's bad blood between the two, that something happened, that it sounds like Han cheated Lando out of the Millennium Falcon, and he's banking that this guy won't remember that. Do you think that's the reason why he sold him out, or would he have been forced to do it anyway? No, I think it's because the Empire beat them there. You see this scene when they're all the asteroid stuff is going on. Vader is resorted to hiring bounty hunters. That's where we're going to get Bosk and IG-88 and Boba Fett. And yeah, Boba Fett, I guess, tracks them. You know, they do this little trick where they put the Millennium Falcon, they connect it to one of the star cruisers, and they kind of drift off with the trash. But Boba Fett's smart enough to know to hang out and find him. And I guess he was able to traject where they were going to go and let the Empire know. And there's been a lot of debate about how long it took them to get there because they had no light speed. Yes, I don't. Yeah, I have wondered that. (laughs) I did talk to Nathan Butler, who runs the Star Wars Timeline Gold, and he's my guru for all things chronology because there have been statements that said Luke was on Dagobah for months. The apparent official statement currently is that it's about three days only, so they must have been really close between Hoth and... Bespin, like, in the same solar system close, but it's still one of those things that Lucasfilm is cagey about stating exactly how long it is, because Luke learns a lot, and Han and Leia find another inhabited planet that they go to at sublight speed, so... It's a problem, I guess, but it's not one I'm going to get hung up on. Luke's (laughs) doing his training on one side of the galaxy, and Han's having his adventures on the other side. I can honestly say I never thought about this once, because again, this is not a series... You're not a Star Wars nerd. No, this this (laughs) series doesn't beg science questions. It's not about that. How they get to where they go is irrelevant. But yeah, Boba Fett tracks them there and is standing right behind Vader when we would be honored. If you would join us. I was always creeped out that you get a Han versus Vader confrontation. Like, I always felt like, no, Vader you save for Luke. But when Han pulls out his blaster and tries to shoot him and, like, Vader blocks it and grabs his gun, that always seemed odd to me. Because I just, I never associate those two facing off. And I love it, though, because of that reason. I mean, Han sees Vader. He is so outclassed at this moment, and we all know he it. He pulls that blaster out right away, though. Yeah, he no hesitation. He is a badass. He tries. I mean, it's just like when he was being taken on board the Death Star. He knew he couldn't defeat the Death Star, but he was going to take some stormtroopers with him. He wanted to go in guns blazing. Here, he sees Darth Vader. He probably thinks he's a dead man, but he immediately grabs that gun and shoots, and the the fact that Vader literally just puts up his hand and like, nope, you're not doing that is just a sign of how powerful he is. How could anyone kill Vader if you could shoot at him nearly point blank and he's still fine? And they torture these guys not because they're trying to get information out of them or even that they're evil. They torture them because that torture is going to, much like when they blew up Leia's homeworld, psychically send waves of pain to any Jedi anywhere, really. 
And I didn't get that. I think you're right, Stuart. I never thought that out until I watched this time for now playing. Like, Luke is going to have this vision on Dagobah. Oh, my friends are in danger. I need to go save them. But, you know, how did Vader know that Luke would get that vision and come? Well, yeah, it makes sense because they're torturing his friends. And Vader knows what the Force is. I'm sure he could feel something's going on. Him and the Emperor are getting together. Like, I, I yeah. think that is why they do the torture here. Keep in mind what the Emperor says in either cut is I felt a great disturbance in the force as Luke gets stronger other Jedi feel that so they know that he has the force and is using it and so yeah it's a safe assumption that if he's that powerful he's that trained that he would be able to know he needs to come rescue his friends which is what happens and he leaves Yoda behind Yoda's like no stay and some great conversation here let Han and Leia die if you honor what they fight for yes just a true emotional conflict yeah it's a true dilemma there's no good answer there I mean we of course side with Luke because we think he's good enough to rescue them without any consequence to him we're wrong he's gonna lose a hand but he could have been even worse I suppose Han would have ended up in the same situation no matter what he was gonna go off with Boba Fett to be taken back to Jabba the Hutt it really is what would have happened to Leia and Chewie at first, Lando is told he's going to be able to hold them. So that wouldn't have been a big deal if Luke would have finished his training. But we'll see Vader does change that deal and he's going to take them. So they could have been in trouble. But no matter what Luke does, Han's situation is not going to change. Yeah, I thought that was very gracious of Darth Vader to give him to Boba Fett. And I got to say, did Boba Fett talk in the original cut? I do not remember yes. him ever speaking. No, he does, and he has a better voice. Yeah. They ruined his voice. They replaced it with Tamura Morrison, who's the actor who played Jango Fett in Attack of the Clones for the DVD release. And I prefer Boba Fett's original raspy voice. Was it Jeremy Bullock doing the voice, the guy in the suit? Or no, was it a no. different voice actor? Jeremy Bullock is a very polite English gentleman. They got a different well, voice, voice actor acting, to do put Captain Solo in the cargo hold. Or, it's so menacing, oh. the original voice. And you know what? When Attack of the Clones came out and people are like, well, Boba Fett's a clone of this New Zealand guy. Why does he sound so different? I love the fan-made explanation. Boba Fett at some point had his throat slit. And so he has a raspy voice without real vocal cords. I love that. The replacement of his voice with Tamara Morrison was completely unnecessary and always takes me out. In fact, there are talking Boba Fett figures and I'll go up and I'll push it. If it's Tamara Morrison's voice, I don't buy it. Yeah, I thought it was strange that he was talking like a Kiwi, but that's right. There's something in Attack of the Clones that will connect this character. Yeah, but you gotta love Boba Fett. He's like the only person who stands up to Darth Vader, questions his decision-making, and lives. And <laughs> when Chewbacca starts going nuts and throwing stormtroopers all over, Boba Fett is the first to pull his blaster ready to shoot them all. And Vader, it, Vader gets physical. He, like, pushes that gun down. We don't see Vader do that too often. People like Boba Fett, but I had the doll of whatever the lizard was in the jumpsuit. Bosk. Okay. Yeah. For some reason, I had that one. I never had the normal ones. I never had Luke. I just had the stupid <laughs> ones like that. Hey, there is nothing stupid about Bosk. Bosk is a cool character. <laughs> yeah, Bosk is pretty awesome. He's got a yellow jumpsuit and yeah. he's a lizard. I think I just wanted the monsters. I wanted to make my own Star Wars where they were all weird creatures. You wanted the horror version where it's more like Alien. <laughs> yeah, I did. I did. Well, that's how I played is when I was a kid, with the exception of Chewbacca, if they were an alien, they were a bad guy. Jawas, Sand People, Greedo, they all were Imperials because they were ugly. Mm -hmm. The pretty people were the good guys. 
that's what movies teach us. Thanks, Hollywood. <laughs> Ugly people are evil inherently. <laughs> and the freezing in carbonite. Yeah. This you talk about cutting open tauntauns and burning Jawas. As a kid, none of that mattered. But you put Han Solo in a frozen block and hibernate him with that little drool of spittle yeah. coming down his mouth. That scared me because he's a living dead man. That scarred me. And to this day, I deal with that fear by buying everything <laughs> Han and Carbonite and surrounding myself with it like a agoraphobe forcing himself to live outdoors. You're afraid of being frozen. Okay. I'm afraid of death. I'm afraid of becoming a human mausoleum. What really like makes it horrific to me is when they kind of just push that slab over and the way it just clunks on the ground. It's so just inhumane. It, it, it's rude, frankly. <laughs> it's disrespectful. Like you've just thrown this guy on the ground. It. I don't know. There was something about that that always troubled me. This is it, guys. I really don't think this series will produce a more emotionally impacting moment for me than the Carbonite. Yeah, it is just a horrible thing to consider that you could be freeze-dried, for lack of a better word, and stuck in a floating coffin. I mean, yeah, it is nightmarish. And this is right after Han and Leia pronounce their love to each other. Like, you have this strong, emotional moment right before the music swelling, and then you go to this. It's... This is a more brutal film. This one it doesn't seem so kid-friendly like Star Wars did. They're going darker here. Everyone gets hurt. I mean, Luke and... and I mean, C-3PO has been blown apart. He's in Chewie's yeah, backpack. Yeah, they rip him to shreds. I forgot about C-3PO in this movie, and there's reasons. He doesn't really do anything, but I guess he's a bit of comic relief. But yeah, man, boy, to end up in shreds on the back of Chewbacca. Eek. The only problem with this is it's so emotional, so tense. There's the kissing, there's the music, there's the awesome orange lighting. And then there's C-3PO, never shutting up. I don't think I minded it as a kid, but looking back on it, isn't this almost a precursor to Jar Jar what 3 is doing here? I feel like he's always had his little quips throughout, well, I guess these first two films. We won't get into the other ones. We'll get theirs where we review them, but I don't think this is out of character for him. I don't even remember him talking. I, I think he actually has a bad moment here. Like many of the characters in this movie, you know, he gets ripped apart. I, I, I feel bad for C-3PO, as I do with all of the Rebels. He never stops talking, and that scene would have so much more weight without him. And, of course, everybody knows the story, I think, but I'll put it out there. The I Love You, I Know was not in the script. improv on the day of because I Love You, I Love You Too just wasn't working for Harrison. They tried to take of I Love You, I Know, and now that's just become so iconic in there, and it is so great. I Love You Too would not work in the same way I Love You, I Know does before he goes off to his probable death. Did Lucas write this script or did they have another writer come in? No, Lucas is just story on this one. The screenplay is to Lee Brackett and Loris Kasdan. Kasdan is coming back. He's one of the writers of The Force Awakens. Okay. I just see if Lucas is directing this. He's like, no, no, just make it work faster and more intense. Like, I feel like you get a different director who understands actors and respects their ability to make certain choices that you get these kind of improv moments like this change the line. Again, I'm, I'm not going to throw Lucas under the bus or the land speeder, but yeah, <laughs> Carrie's really good in this moment. I really don't ever get 
too much out of her other than her fire. But here, the vulnerability shows through. She has a really good exchange, and it's mostly looks. It's one of the few times I notice her in this movie. Yeah, and I think she looks good in this movie, too. Like you said, the buns are gone. Here, she's got those loops on the back. She's kind of in a white outfit again after the pink dress. And yeah, she and Chewbacca's roars have to sell us on the drama because Harrison Ford goes into a pit and doesn't return for the rest of the movie. They do sell it. And the John Williams music, you can't understate how much importance that has to selling this, that music. I mean, I think I agree with Jacob that that in the asteroid is like the best crescendo and just a great piece but here now you're dealing with a piece of score that so sells the emotion of the moment that of just tremendous again yeah we're pained we're hurt we're angry and we understand why luke's angry we want luke to take that and go at vader i never understood how he was playing into vader's plot here it it wasn't clear to me as a kid because i was blinded by the same rage and It did take me watching it as an adult to completely understand the whole point was to get Luke to fall into that pit and freeze him. And so they were just testing to make sure it wouldn't kill him. Right. Although eventually they'd have to warm him up and like ask him, hey, do you want to join our club? But then they'd be doing it while he's in a cell. He holds little power either way. Say yes. And he's on their side. Say no. All right. Well, you're still in a cell. Yeah, we'll see what happens next week in a similar situation. So is Han's Frozen Reef, Luke's finally going to take off to get to Cloud City to try to save his friends, and Ben shows up again. Yeah, Alec Guinness doing his very short shots. Again, just remarkable that they filmed this whole thing not knowing if they'd get him. Lucas was saying things like, I guess we could get somebody to look kind of like him in makeup and copy the voice, but they didn't know. All of this stuff was shot, and they didn't know. What I find interesting, you said, oh, they're planting seeds. Obviously, they need to have a sequel after this one. You can't. This is not a standalone film. This is the middle film of a trilogy, and it, it has those obvious cliffhangers. But Ben and Yoda, after Luke leaves, they have this conversation. Yoda doesn't want him to leave. He leaves anyway. Yoda says, now matters are worse. And Ben says, that boy is our last hope. And then Yoda replies, no, there is another. Now, I know in Return of the Jedi who the other is supposed to be, but it feels like this was a plot point that was supposed to have a much grander execution than it ends up having. All right, this gets really confusing, but the other was an idea that Lucas put in, not because of necessarily a plot point, but because he wanted us to think Luke could die. What? I never thought Luke could die, but by saying this, Lucas thought... We'd all believe that there's somebody as a backup to Luke, so if Vader killed Luke, there could still be an episode six. And originally, it wasn't there is another. In the third draft, Yoda was saying, we must find another. Mm. And Lucas changed that to, we must search for another, and finally ended on, there is another. As for who that other was, it's funny, it's completely separate from this whole sister debate. It was always intended from Lucas's earliest notes that it be revealed in Empire that Luke has a sister, but he never, ever meant for it to be Leia. Believe it or not, there was actually another intense, passionate kiss between Luke and Leia in early drafts of the script. (laughs) Lucas wanted to introduce a sister here for use in episodes 7 through 9. His thinking was that Leia and Han would get married and go off or something, but episodes 7 through 9 would introduce Luke to his twin sister, who had 
Ben training other Jedi. So completely unrelated to anything here, an interesting twist, not one dramatically fulfilling in the fight against the Empire, but one that would set up the next trilogy. Luke was going to feel his sister in the Force through his Jedi training, and we'd get to it eventually. It wasn't until the early notes for Jedi, when Lucas had pretty much decided to take a break, he wasn't going to jump straight in episodes 7 through 9, that's when he started playing around with the idea that Leia was Luke's sister as a resolution to the whole love triangle thing. I didn't realize that they didn't have that worked out. I just assumed that they got their act together after Star Wars made bank. Yeah, it, and it seems like that should have played out more. Like, there should have been a Leia-Luke team-up against the Emperor and Vader in Return of the Jedi, which we're not going to get. It It really seems like a dropped thread that Yoda has here. Well, Jacob, we'd actually get Leia and Luke teaming up somewhat in an Infinities comic that was never intended to be part of canon, kind of a what-if. If you read the Infinities Return of the Jedi, it ends with Luke and Leia on board the Death Star, having a lightsaber fight against Vader and the Emperor. It's a fun read. Yeah, I hold it. My memories of Jedi are not as strong as my memories of Empire, but I don't remember her ever using the Force. Maybe I'll be surprised. Or maybe you won't. But yeah. <laughs> Luke gets to the Cloud City. He lands. He starts skulking around. And, you know, he sees Boba Fett and Stormtroopers taking Han away and has a little bit of shootout. And Leia sees him. She says, it's a trap. Now, that's a big famous line from for next week. I never realized it was here. And I know Lucas likes to repeat these motifs like 3PO. He seems to always be losing a limb. Like here he gets blown apart last week. He lost an arm. He'll lose an eye in Jedi. There's lines that they read. You know, I got a bad feeling about this. Was there an it's a trap in Star Wars, the first one? No. Okay. I, I thought maybe this was something I just never realized until now, but it's just a new line here. Well, it's all very simple dialogue, Jacob. Like yes. I said last time, all of these movies should work as silent films. Empire works worst as a silent film because it has the most complex drama going on. It still could work. I think you could do it as a silent film with a few cards that come up. I'd like to see somebody do a fan edit with like the little, <laughs> you know, organ music. And then we would be honored if you would join us comes up on a card or something thing. But because we're using simple phrases and cliches as dialogue to get a point across very quickly in shorthand, yeah, things like it's a trap are going to come up quite a bit. I could never understand what she was saying as a kid when I was listening to that record. I'm like, what is she <laughs> screaming? It wasn't until like the THX remixes that it was clear to me. And if you want to talk about motifs, again, I've already cited it. People lose their hands quite often in this universe. You <laughs> go into a cantina bar, say something wrong, Ben will take it off. Your wampa could find out what a lightsaber can do. Luke's going to find out in what's probably what? Can I say the best uh, lightsaber battle we're ever going to get? Oh, hell no. Uh, There's prequels. Well, okay. Yeah, there there's the technical aspect and then there's the emotional aspect. I will say this is the second strongest when you come to that emotional aspect. I think Return's going to be even more emotional here, but I love this lightsaber battle. I love the evolution of it. Like, Vader, when he starts fighting, he is only using one hand. It's like totally mocking Luke, who's using both hands to get all his strength, and Vader's just using that one. It isn't until Luke outsmarts him and jumps out of the carbon freeze, and you know, impressive, most impressive, that Vader has to go to two hands and start really getting into it, and then becomes a cheat and just starts throwing stuff, using the force at him. Oh, that's when you realize 
realize how badass Vader is. We've seen Luke move some rocks around. And with the lightsaber fight, I mean, Vader saying impressive and things like that. Luke falls into the carbonite chamber and Luke uses that super jump and gets the hell out of there. Luke is holding his own until Vader decides to pull out the trick and say, I've been toying with you this whole time. I'm going to throw heavy things at you now while I just stand here and you good luck deflecting them. There is some composition I love, too, at one point where Luke gets thrown out that window and he's walking around and Vader, like, comes out of nowhere. And he's the way it's framed, he is so hulking and just towering over Luke, who just looks so diminutive at that point. It, it makes this a scary lightsaber battle. Last week, it was like two old guys fighting. Well, it was two old guys fighting. Yes. This week, though, it feels dangerous. There feels like a real threat going on. And again, I got to call out Ben Burt. This time it's broken up, but the majority of the lightsaber fight, no music. Yeah. They cut to music when they cut away from the fight and you got Lando and Chewie and Leia running around. But this whole lightsaber fight is all sound effects. And it's not just the sabers. You get the sound effects of the carbon freezing chamber, the gases running, the window breaking, the wind sucking them out. And then when they end up on that final platform where the wind is just blowing past and Luke is looking around. This has suspense because Vader's playing cat and mouse and he's disappearing and they're just coming out of nowhere repeatedly. Did they change the way they did these lightsaber effects? I mean, they look better, but last week, I don't think we brought this up, but I noticed whenever they'd clash lightsabers, you get these like yellow circles. And I think that was because of the chemicals they put on the actual physical sabers that they were using. I didn't notice that this week. It, it feels like maybe they relied more on the special effects this time. They reduced it. There still were yellow flashes, but in A New Hope, it really felt like the entire screen flashed green. Here, there's little moments of green that surround the area where the two lightsabers hit. And at the end of this battle, you know, we said Vader was playing with Luke and all, but don't forget, Luke draws first blood. He actually gets a hit in on Vader. Vader screams. He just glances the shoulder. No arms are cut off, but Vader roars. And I think that's when Vader's like, oh, crap, this kid actually could do some damage to me. And it's very shortly after that that Vader takes it seriously and lops off Luke's hand. Okay, so you're pissed and you're losing your battle and the guy that you wanted to punish for hurting your friend is winning and and you pretty much... You're kind of toast. And all of a sudden they say to you, by the way, I'm your father. Are you tempted? Is Luke at all tempted about joining him? He seems so pained by it. But is he pained that he's embarrassed to have this person in his family history? Or is he pained because, oh my God, I want to do this and Yoda was right? I think that's some of it. And I also think it's like, oh, Ben, who I had this huge respect for, like, this is not the story he told me. He told me this guy killed my dad. Not that he is my dad. I've been betrayed by my friends. Oh, interesting. I take it the same way Jacob does. And it's also not the story that Kirshner told David Prowse. Yes. We talked about how no one really liked Prowse. He has a troubled history with Star Wars. Perhaps that, but nobody on the set knew. The scripts that were handed out didn't know the line was, I am your father. Kirshner said, I told Mark, don't tell anyone, especially don't tell David Prowse. Yeah, I knew they didn't want Prowse to know because he would leak it out. Well, oh, okay. I'm like, why would that be a problem? Because he's just a a loudmouth. Yeah. Yeah, he wanted all the press and he would have said it just to get an interview. Okay. Well, I I thought you meant he would have balked at the decision and argued that wasn't in his character. Okay. Well, that's fine. (laughs) No. (laughs) 
I don't even know how, as an adult, I would have reacted to this because it seems like this set up that kind of twist. I'm sure that, I don't know, there's some arcane movie out there that had a huge twist like this, but like this seems to have set the standard. But as a child, mind blowing all over the wall, get the cleanup crew to scrape brains off. And I thought Darth Vader was a robot, and I was perfectly yeah. fine that a robot could give birth or father a human child. I thought my own father was a robot. Emotionally, he was, so I was fine with that. But I have heard that there were people who doubted. I'm not sure I fully understood. I mean, I knew, but I didn't know going into Jedi. But going back, I understand there was three years of debate. Was Vader lying? I don't think this movie sells in any way that Vader's lying. I mean, after Luke tries to commit suicide and falls to what would certainly be his death, but isn't. Yeah, I, they are they're going to add a scene into Jedi to convince people that, yes, Vader really is the father. And when I was watching this with this eight year old, like in Star Wars, she's like, oh, Darth Vader's the dad. I know but she's very savvy when it comes to movies. And I'm like trying my best. I'm like, no, remember what Obi-Wan said that Vader killed his father? Because I'm like, you got to have the shock that I had. You got to experience the same thing. But she was confused afterwards. She's like, wait, so who's telling the truth now? So there are I could see people getting confused if you paid attention to all these lines and you were obsessive enough to debate this for the three years in between movies. Yes, there could be some doubt, I guess. But no, I bought this totally as Vader telling the truth. And I don't think either one's lying. I mean, I think Ben was implying that, you know, his the father part did die and Vader killed it. I mean, right? Yes, I mean, that, you're remembering Return of the Jedi because what he said was true from a certain point of view. Yeah, exactly. When you take this Eastern philosophy of, of life and death rebirth and, and what have you. But to me, this is not a conundrum. I completely accept this moment and uh, I accept it a lot better than that he escapes on a on a slide. <laughs> that is one heck of a fall right into the tube. But, you know, let's go Freudian. He's now had his moment. Now he has to go through the tube to come out reborn. Let's be rebirthed. Yeah. yeah. Didn't they add a scream to the special edition that they then took out because it's awful? I think it was in the movie because on the other DVD with the special edition, it wasn't on there either. So they took it out at some point. Yes, they added a scream for the special edition that... Nobody liked. They finally took it out again. Hey, did I tell you that Lucasfilm said there were many sound mixes? <laughs> yeah, is that their excuse there? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he jumps down and like gets sucked into a tube. This feels like that moment in Galaxy Quest where the ship gets all weird and has like saws going back and forth so you could get to this ultimate button because they based it off the TV shows. It's it's just I don't get this part of Cloud City, like why things are opening up and he's dropping onto the antenna below. But OK, we're wrapping it up. Is it another garbage shoot? I just assume maybe they, uh, <laughs> you know. The important thing here that is completely lost in the way it's sold in the movie is I don't think Luke's escaping. I think Luke's no, committing suicide. suicide. Yeah, it, he fails at it because of the will of the force, I guess. But he would rather die than join Darth Vader. So to circle back to Stuart's original question, after hearing this news, Luke is not going to join his father. He would rather die. And what I find very important, and I took this at the very beginning, even as five, I got this. Vader is being duplicitous. He's like, with you, we can overthrow the emperor. Vader wants to be the new emperor. It's all very double-crossing and twisted. What seems strange to me is, okay, so Lando, Chewie, Leia, 
3PO. They've all gotten aboard the Falcon. R2's even joined them. They've had shootouts with stormtroopers, and they're getting away. They think the hyperdrive has been fixed. Maybe you just have to get out of the atmosphere before you activate it, because they're just kind of cruising out of there, and Luke has time to have this fight and then start calling out to Leia, so they turn around and come rescue him. Remember, it's got to take time for the Navi computer, it'll jump right into (laughs) it. That they've never mentioned again. It's something I've noticed, yeah. (laughs) I take it they're fighting. Keep in mind, they're trying to stop Boba Fett. They're trying to catch Boba Fett because Boba Fett's still around. They tried to get him at the platform and he took off into space. Their whole point, they're not thinking about Luke. They're thinking about trying to rescue Han, or as Lando likes to say, Han. Yeah, someone's always saying the names wrong. It's either Leia or Leah. Like, someone's always screwing it up. It's like nobody on the set knew how to say it, so they just gave him the words and said, whatever you think. It doesn't have to be consistent, but... It is them who rescue Luke because he does call to Leia with the Force. And you're right, what you said earlier, Jacob. This is a really weird ending for a movie. I mean, as a kid, I went with it because Star Wars movies end with a lightsaber fight. But to end with a lightsaber fight where Luke loses his hand and then they just run away and Han is in a block of carbonite. If this movie hadn't done well and given Lucas the money to finance the third one... I think this would be a very different ending. I think it's a pretty safe bet. They knew they were going to be able to complete the story. That's why I figured they had it all worked out, that it was, they knew exactly where they were going. I can't believe that they didn't know some of the references you're saying that they might have written uh, later after the, this movie came out. That's that's quite risky. But to your point about being reborn here, it, this is the one moment where Luke actually looks like he did from the first movie. He seems to be outfitted in that page boy haircut and sort of the classic white robe that I think of him being in here as he's getting his new hand. And I do feel like, yeah, he's kind of been restored to where he was before. But what he will go and do and and what, and how they will get Han back, how they will fight Darth Vader, these were really shocking questions to leave a seven-year-old boy with. My question is, I always thought he got his hand cut off like at the wrist. But when he's getting this robot hand, did they have to like sever off more? Because he's got that circuits like in the forearm and they're testing it. I guess he could feel pain in case he catches it on fire or something. It doesn't melt it. I think they show that he feels in the hand. So you don't think that he's completely robotic there, that it's just such a horrible injury that he'll never feel anything there again. They're trying to reassure kitties. Oh, don't (laughs) worry. Luke's okay. They have robotics that can fix him. And I'm so glad they did, because when I was a kid, I couldn't understand why he didn't bleed out, honestly. I didn't know anything about cauterizing a wound, so I just couldn't understand why, if your hand got cut off, why he would not be dead before they even found him. And he did lose a little bit above the wrist, but if they had to cut off more, hey, that's 2-1-B's business. Lucas does seem to have a thing for letting robots feel pain. I mean, C-3PO and R2 is welding him back together on the ship. He's like, oh, ouch, you're burning my circus, like as he's putting his leg back on. Seems very cruel to make robots be able to feel pain. Or maybe it humanizes them and makes makes us like them. You know, one of the most humanizing moments, we've talked a lot about Darth Vader and if he's a robot. One time, I feel like he gets his comeuppance in this film. Like, this is called The Empire Strikes Back, and things are bleak at the end. The one moment I really love is when the crew of the Millennium Falcon, finally, they figure out how to turn that hyperdrive back on. It's been disconnected. It's all R2. It's not the crew. Yeah. Okay. (laughs) R2's been talking to strange computers again, and they've told him it's been deactivated. R2 activates it. Like, Vader's like, okay, get the tractor beam ready, and that ship takes off, and... 
I don't know how they captured this moment. I think the one time I could credit Prowse, maybe like the way Vader, he is steering out at the Millennium Falcon. It takes off and he kind of does this half turn and then turns back around to look like, did that just really happen? Like it, it is one of those moments that I love where you're able to take this emotionless mask and like show him totally defeated. I'm like, oh, someone's getting choked now. And of course, I love Piet in that scene because he's the yes. one who said that the hyperdrive was deactivated. And so the look on his face when Vader's walking away, he's like, I'm dead. Of course, that gets to one scene that they inserted that I just dislike for the special edition. They took scenes from Return of the Jedi and a voice that they claim is James Earl Jones, but I don't think sounds like him. Because people apparently wondered in the old movie, how did Darth Vader get back to his Star Destroyer? In the original cut, he says, get my cruiser so I could get back up there. It's it's very clear. There's no confusion. Yeah, but now there's extra scenes of tell my Star Destroyer to prepare for my arrival with a weird cadence like that. And then they have to screw up John Williams' perfect score to insert some shots of a Imperial shuttle flying from Bespin to the Star Destroyer. And then... A scene from Return of the Jedi of him walking off the ship. It's all unnecessary fluff. What are you guys even talking about? Somebody complained that they didn't know how he flew back to the ship? Yeah. Yes. Okay, yeah. I don't think about these things. Again, ever, really. Lucas does, apparently. It's very important to him. Not the acting, not the lines of dialogue, but how does Vader get back to his ship? In a paper crane looking dealy. That's uh, that's good enough for me. But yeah, this movie messed me up as a kid. I mean, it's a bleak ending. It's kind of this beautiful scenery as Luke and Leia look out of the ship and you see, all you know, the Y-Wings and all those flying off and Lando. Did, did he raid Han's closet? He's got Han's clothes on. <laughs> I here. always thought that like the pilot of the Millennium Falcon will wear a black vest and yeah. a white shirt. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, they're taking off to maybe go save Han. I mean, Luke's lost his hand. The Empire, they have struck back, and they have struck back hard in this film. And it changed my mindset as a kid. I, it made me look at films more critically and like, oh, they're just going to have the good guys win like always. Like, this can't be done differently because I've seen it in Empire Strikes Back. And the last shot there where Luke puts his arm around Leia, but when they last were together, Luke was putting his hand behind his head and looking all smug about that kiss. But now I feel like they've matured. They've suffered a loss. They had been the rebels where, despite Leia losing her whole planet, the movies never sold us her pain. But here, they're both more sullen. They're just needing each other for reassurance. It's a more militaristic mourning that they have when 3PO and R2 and Luke and Leia are staring at that window. And I don't think William's music ever gets more emotional than it is right here at the end of the movie. The way they took the Star Wars theme and just kind of gave it this emotional depth and just slower and somber. And it is my favorite piece of end credit lead in music. And here I am thinking they need to go have some stress relieving sex. Uh, they don't have chemistry. <laughs> it's been annihilated. I'm telling you. It's a side hug here. These Luke is not going to take this opportunity to be like, oh, good, Hans and Carbonite. I can get with this. You're in a very different place than we are, Stuart. <laughs> Clearly. You're talking about it being your most emotional moment at the end of a movie. And I'm like, hmm, why isn't he screwing her? Why won't he tap that? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> He just lost his hand. I think he'd have some issues. Hey, with... the other one was working just fine. <laughs> oh, <gee. laughs> Let's get out of this place. 
Yeah, hyperspace away from that. So, Jacob Stewart, recommend or recommend not? Jacob. I think this is an obvious recommend for me. I feel like this is a better film than Star Wars. Star Wars is the more important film. This is the one, if I could only watch one, this is the one I'm going to watch. It's the acting's better. Just the little nuances, the, the side glances characters are giving each other. It makes it a more enjoyable film on a dramatic level. The dialogue's better here. This story has more emotional weight. The score's better. I just feel like... Everything has been done better, except the effects. Like, Stuart, you felt like we gave a pass last week to the effects. Here, the effects do age worse. Like, Cloud City, those orange ships flying around and the map paintings, that shot through the window where Leia's walking around, it all just looks bad to me, and it's a mark against here. But this is a better film than Star Wars. It's not a more important one, but it is a better one. And because of all those elements, it just feels like this universe has been more realized. Like, Lucas, he figured out all the look in that first film. He knew what the aliens should be like and how the ship should look. But here comes the actual character and the actual depth and the actual emotion to it. And that's why, for me, if last week was a strong, strong recommend, I guess this is a strong, strong, strong recommend. Stuart. Yeah, there's no contest here. I mean, there's it's not even worth comparing the two. I mean, Star Wars is like an antique, you know, some relic. You pull off the shelf and look, look at it, but don't touch it because you'll break it. And it's it's like this precious little thing that's fun to admire, but how do you play with it? This is a toy you can give any kid. I mean, this is the kind of action, kick-ass extravaganza you were claiming, Arnie, that the movie last week was. But this one effortlessly is. I mean, there's not a thing about this that doesn't warp past what was done by Lucas three years ago. And I don't know if the movie franchise could have dealt with having another stilted vibe like the original movie. We needed to believe in the emotions more. We needed to go darker to feel the threat. We needed to have the heroes taken down a peg. This movie was necessary. It's vital. It may not be the best in the whole franchise. I'm going to hold on that one. But for me, it's clearly a much more enjoyable experience. It's a solid high recommend. You're going to hold on that? Which one are you holding out hope you like better? Phantom Menace? Phantom Menace might have been better. He just doesn't remember it. I think episode seven could. Didn't somebody promise Christopher Lee or somebody promise it was going to be the best one? Christopher Lee had no involvement in it, yeah. and he's dead now. So. Well, somebody said that. I don't know who. Someone involved. <laughs> yeah, they're not biased. As for me, I agree with what you both said. I agree with Jacob that this is a better film, technically. It is better written. It has better emotions. I agree with what you said, Stuart, that without this as the sequel, the Star Wars franchise could have fallen apart. I said at the beginning, this is where Star Wars went from a movie to a religion. I stand by that. It's this movie that opens the imagination and teaches us about the Force and gives us real relationships. The first movie was a lot of flash and dazzle and a hell of a lot of fun. This one's more emotional and more real. Had Lucas not been too busy, and had Lucas not brought in his old teacher, who had no experience with effects films, but had experience with characters and emotion, we might not be talking about this at all today. It could have gone the way of the Matrix. But I still say that the pacing is an issue, 
especially on repeat viewings. What enthralls the first 50 times does start to drag after you can recite every line, and it is the flash and bang that provides more fun. So it's a better movie. Star Wars is still my favorite movie, but I understand it has weaknesses. I think the effects here hold up pretty well with the exception of a couple tauntauns. The special editions did fix Cloud City and add some needless scenes of the Millennium Falcon flying, but it's neck and neck for me. They just both have their strong suits. I love them both. It's like, don't ask me to pick which of my children is my favorite, although I kind of like the first one better, the oldest child, but it's the highest recommend. Again, I'm going to just tie it and say this is equal to the recommend I gave Star Wars, which I said was the strongest recommend I've ever given and probably ever will give. Wow. And see, to me, this almost feels like a different movie series. It's that transformative. I almost can't connect it to the movie of last week. And I can't tear them apart. This whole trilogy is one movie in my mind. It's one piece. It's one movement of a grand symphony then I'm going to like Ewoks a whole lot more than I remember it. <laughs> Are you saying Ewoks in Jedi or Ewoks the TV movies that we're going to be doing? Oh, I forgot about the TV <laughs> movies. Yeah, I was just talking about next week. Oh, my God. I didn't realize that we had three weeks of them. Just be thankful we're not doing the Ewok cartoon because that, that is bad. Unwatchable. Yes, it is. It really is. The eight-year-old who loves Ewoks could not watch that cartoon. Hmm. Our friends have reviewed all of the Ewok cartoons and droids cartoons, and I was involved a little bit in them over at RepublicForces.com, Republic Forces Radio Network that did all of the old animated series. You can find that at RepublicForces.com if you want to hear a bunch of grown men cry. <laughs> in pain? But if you want to hear a bunch of grown men celebrate, you can join us Friday as we look back on the track for our little green bag with the Reservoir Dogs. That's right. Gold level donation begins with the first movie in Tarantino's directorial career. He had already sold some scripts, but he held on to this one. He was going to make it hell or high water, and he wasn't going to give it up. So he made it on his own terms. And thank God he met Harvey Keitel. We'll be talking about what they made this Friday. That's right. It's part of our gold level donation series. We've already released two podcasts in our silver level series, the Battle Royale duology. Which do have a Tarantino link to them. Indeed. And Tarantino did want to make a Star Wars movie. Thank God they didn't let him. <laughs> <laughs> They're making one a year. Time's not up yet. Yeah, you're right. Actually, this this could happen. These series, these worlds could converge at some point. But this is part of our fall donation drive where we do like a PBS pledge drive. For those who haven't donated before, understand none of us are sitting here and driving fast cars and snorting coke with $100 bills gotten from these donation series. Quite the opposite. Where do you get your coke money? <laughs> is it from ripping off the food pantry down the street what what is that from that, yeah that makes no sense yeah, it does it's either a personal reference or a tarantino reference and i'm not getting either one no no i'm just thinking about some poor victim the last person i, I guess i should have said a church so <laughs> so we need listener support to keep this going. And I need cocaine to keep the hours needed for this show sometimes. It might help. It helped Carrie Fisher this movie, allegedly. 
<laughs> We're not going to let you go down that dark path, Arnie. So we do these pledge drives to raise money for the show we do every week. We could not review the Star Wars series. We could not review the Transporter series, the Mission Impossible series, the Marvel movies. All the movies we do would never have happened without listener support. We just couldn't afford the servers. We couldn't afford the bandwidth. We couldn't afford the equipment that keeps getting upgraded. We need your help. And we hope that you enjoy our show enough to donate $10 or $25 for the over 50 podcasts we're releasing on our main feed for free for everyone this year. But as a thank you, we are giving donors special podcasts that are only available for a limited time and for the silver level donation it's hunger games and battle royale for gold donation it is every film directed by quentin tarantino from reservoir dogs through the upcoming hateful eight and for platinum of 35 dollars or more you get five extra movie reviews of tarantino related films true romance written by tarantino but not directed Natural Born Killers, story by Quentin Tarantino, originally based on a script he wrote, but he's kind of distanced himself from. Four Rooms, a film that had four different directors. Tarantino directed one quarter of it. From Dusk Till Dawn, Tarantino stars, Tarantino wrote, Robert Rodriguez directed. Then as part of the Grindhouse review, you get a bonus review of Robert Rodriguez's Planet Terror, whereas for the gold donation, we're only reviewing Quentin Tarantino's directed Death Proof. If you look at just the price per podcast on this donation, it's excessively cheap. It is less than discounted MP3 albums at Amazon cheap. And it's 19 podcasts that's going to be over 20 hours of podcast listening easily. I would be surprised if it's not over 30 by the time we're done with all of Tarantino. So we hope you'll support us in this. And we thank you in advance for whatever you can give to keep now playing going. So Jacob Stewart, thank you for joining me. And until next time, the podcast will be with you always. We're ready for takeoff. Good luck, Mando. When we find Jabba the Hutt and that bounty hunter, we'll contact you. I'll meet you at the rendezvous point on Tatooine. Princess, we'll find mm. Anne. I promise. Chewie, I'll be waiting for your signal. Take care, you two. May the force be with you. Thank you for listening to this episode of the now-playing Star Wars Retrospective Series. Fredo's gonna leave without giving you a goodbye kiss. We hope you've enjoyed the show. I never doubted you for a second. Wonderful! That boy is our last hope. There is another. If you like Star Wars, join Arnie and Marjorie at SWActionNews.com for Star Wars Action News, a podcast dedicated to Star Wars toys, books, games, and more. Friends you have there. I've got to go to them. And come back to NowPlayingPodcast.com each week for another new movie review. You must come along now, Arthur. In the archives at NowPlayingPodcast.com, you can find hundreds of in-depth movie reviews, including every film in the Star Trek, Terminator, 2001, Back to the Future, Batman, and James Bond film series. We would be honored if you would join us. And while at NowPlayingPodcast.com, be sure to join our forums, where you can share your opinions of these films with the hosts and other listeners. There you will learn from Yoda 
the Jedi Master who instructed me. You can also follow Now Playing on Facebook, Twitter, and Google+, where we post announcements of new episodes and where the hosts post movie mini-reviews. Links to our social media pages are at nowplayingpodcast.com. You truly belong here with us among the clouds. Thank you. Everyone's invited, of course. Now Playing is an independent podcast with no sponsors or ads. We rely on support from listeners like you to help keep the show going. What if he doesn't survive? He's worth a lot to me. You can find a link to donate using PayPal at the bottom of our website, nowplayingpodcast.com. They're my friends, I gotta help them. You can also help out Now Playing by leaving us a five-star review on iTunes. Alright, I'll give it a try. No! Try not! Do! Or do not! There is no try. A link to Now Playing's iTunes listing can be found at nowplayingpodcast.com. Thank you. Thank you very much. You're perfectly welcome, sir. You can show your love of Now Playing Podcast by shopping in our store, where you can buy Now Playing t-shirts, coffee mugs, mouse pads, and much more. Why, you scruffy-looking nerf herder! A link to our Cafe Press store is available on our homepage. Come with me. It is the only way. Now Playing is edited by Arnie. This one goes there, that one goes there, right? Now playing credit narration by Brock. I'm glad you're here to tell us these things. Now playing is not affiliated with Lucasfilm, 20th Century Fox, or Disney. Star Wars and all that the Star Wars universe contains is the intellectual property and trademark of Lucasfilm Limited, and no infringement is intended. Apology accepted, Captain Nida. The opinions expressed on Now Playing are those of the individual hosts and may not reflect the opinion of Venganza Media Incorporated. Search your feelings, you know it to be true. Now Playing is a Venganza Media production, copyright 2015, all rights reserved, and no part of this show may be reproduced, repurposed, or redistributed without the written permission of Venganza Media Incorporated. I am altering the deal. Pray I don't alter it any further. Kind of feels like an Indiana Jones bat with Kate Capshaw or what was her name? The good one? Well, the better <laughs> one. Um, Karen Allen. It kind of feels like a spatty tab with Ichuta. That said, though, in 64, Shadow of the Empire, I would just play that Hoth level over and over. The first level on there where you got to take out Tauntauns with the tow cable. I don't know why Snow's Take out Adass. No, you're not taking out Tauntauns with the tow oh, cable. Sorry. Poor Tauntaun. Pretty- what are you doing to the Tauntaun? Uh, that's yeah. That's like those safari hunters that shoot lions. <laughs> yeah, Lost World, I believe, is that movie. <laughs> hey, Wedge is the unsung hero of the rebellion, played by Ewan McGregor's uncle. Oh, huh. okay. All right. Is that why you got the job? <laughs> I don't think Ewan McGregor was very old at the time. Oh, you no, mean I that's don't... why Ewan McGregor? Yeah. Yes. Yes. <laughs> no, I don't think this child got his uncle the uh, the gig. Oh, wait, Ahsoka doesn't die in the prequels? No. Oh. (laughs) (laughs) We'll get there. Not recommend.
But yeah, I see. I know what that is. I haven't forgotten. <laughs> oh, I love that review. When I when I tell you the plot summary of the <laughs> Clone Wars cartoon, it'll just be about <laughs> Ahsoka. <laughs> and stinky. And stinky. Yes. Oh, I have to go back and listen to your review. Of oh, that, that it there. is priceless. <laughs> The yes. review I had to make you do because I couldn't. It's just basically like, and this, you guys like this? What the f*** am I watching here? <laughs> Maybe if you live 900 years, you end up green-skinned and your ears get that big and pointy. Yeah, I agree. That's so weird, Arnie, because there is a cheerleader I knew in high school that had that theory. And I'm like, that's the dumbest thing because you're a dumb cheerleader. But I, I guess other people have had that thought. <laughs> <laughs> I think he just called you a dumb cheerleader, Arnie. I'm sexy. I'm cute. I'm popular to boot. Woo! <laughs> Very nice guy. I met him once before he died. Lobot or Patrick Stewart? <laughs> Lobot. Okay. Patrick Stewart's Patrick- <laughs> still alive, isn't he? <laughs> but he's also very nice from the brief encounter I had. 